Hey everybody, before we go into today's podcast, I have some exciting news. Uh, VaynerMedia and VaynerX, which holds purewow.com, 1.37 p.m., the Sasha Group, um, on and on and on, is hiring pretty aggressively for a creator role. That is a copywriter. That means you have good ideas. You can come up with ideas, and then you can also have the English skills to write the copy on the Facebook or Twitter or YouTube post. Uh, Team Gary's hiring. VaynerMedia's hiring. We're just hiring. And so uh, please go to GaryVee.com slash creator. That's GaryVee.com slash creator. Uh, let me see if I can spell here. C-R-E-A-T-O-R. Please go uh, check that out. I, I assume that there's a, a form there that helps you show a little bit of your work and kind of get us on third base. I'm starting to contemplate uh, maybe even some remote work as well. So uh, please uh, please go fill out a form if you're interested in joining the Vayner family. We are looking for designers like crazy, like designers like crazy, meaning you can design for TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Uh, we're looking for animators. If you're good at that cartoon shit, we're looking for you. Uh, we are definitely, definitely looking for people that obsess over the idea of taking a keynote of mine or a long form commercial and creating 72 video assets out of it. Uh, the kind of stuff you see consistently from us on uh, Instagram. So if you've got hunger, uh, humility, uh, and want to enter one of the best marketing machines of all time, please go to GaryBE.com slash creator, uh, designers and and writers. I'm also looking for a writer or two. Well, I'm at it. I don't know if that's there, but I'm definitely looking for somebody to join to my team to help Raghav write LinkedIn articles and blog posts. So if you're really into the idea of like watching unlimited Gary content and turning it into written articles, I think it's a cool job. Uh, and it's definitely been a launching pad for interesting careers inside our world. So anyway, great time at Vayner for uh, entry level creators. That is really what we're looking for. Class of 2020. So many of you, let's call it what it is, got fucked. Job offers pulled, internships pulled, um, entry-level creator life at VaynerMedia. Hit us up, garyv.com slash creator. My longest pre-roll ever because it's that important. All right, and now today's podcast. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining VaynerX Presents Marketing for the Now. Today, our focus is on what it takes to lead courageously. I'm Andrea Sullivan, CMO of VaynerX, and we're super fired up to have Shane Battier as the co-host joining Gary. The speaker lineup we have today gives me goosebumps. They are all leaders in their field and committed to making systemic change and recognize that it's hard and it's going to take all of us. Just a couple of quick things before we dive in. We'll be recording each and every one of these sessions and posting them on VaynerX.com. Please help us keep the conversation going on Twitter, hashtag marketing for the now. And feel free to share questions or any kind of feedback by emailing us at marketingforthenow at vaynerx.com. Gary and Shane are gonna kick things off, but first just a bit more on Shane. Shane Battier is a two-time NBA champion and a 13-year NBA vet. He's known for his exceptional defense, especially his charges for being one of the premier three and D players in NBA history. He'll hopefully share a few of his secrets on how data helped fuel his success. And before the NBA, he attended Duke University and earned a bachelor's degree in religious studies. He's now the director of basketball development and analytics for the Miami Heat. And he's also the co-founder of the Battier Take Charge Foundation. 
and it provides resources for the development and education of underserved youth and teens. I really can't wait to listen in on this conversation. And thanks, Shane, so much for joining us as co-host. Shane, uh, so exciting to have you on. Uh, obviously, as a big sports fan, and the 3 and D thing really resonates with me because I think about it a lot in business and life, the things that a lot of people haven't seen or the angles. But before we go into some of that fun stuff, uh, talk to me about the Take Charge Foundation, because I think that's super exciting to hear that that's in motion. I'd love to get a sense of what that's about. And really, since you're since you're the co-host, I want to I want to give you the assist on this one. I'll, I'll play a little Stockton Malone. I'd love to give you a chance to talk about it because I'd love to get it as much exposure as possible. And before we get into that answer, I apologize, Shane. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Hashtag marketing for the now, like always. I'll be keeping tabs, like always. And uh, and I hope you enjoy this session because it's pretty remarkable. Shane, on that, Take Charge Foundation. Well, thanks for having me, Gary. Hello to uh, the Banner X universe. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, Look, I am, uh, I'm here because I love opportunity and I feel passionate about opportunity. And that's why I started the Battier Take Charge uh, Foundation. Um, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have had an amazing career in basketball and be 6'8". And uh, uh, I had a lot of people help me along the way. Uh, but I realized that if I wasn't 6'8", and I didn't have the, jump, the jumper that I had, uh, there's no way I would have been able to unlock my dreams uh, and have the opportunity that I had through education. And so uh, I realized at a young age. So I said, self, if you make it, you gotta, you gotta give back and you gotta create opportunities for others. And so there's so many kids now and we see um, just with all, all the protests nationally, uh, the injustices and the inequalities uh, in the educational system. And so uh, my wife and I, Heidi, have decided to try to correct that in our own way. So we, we've had over 60 scholars in our program. We award college scholarships to kids who are from at-risk communities and uh, who are just like me, who had uh, drive, discipline, the talent, but just not the opportunity. And so that's why we're here to, uh, to, to create that opportunity and, 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 and see how, how much we can elevate uh, some really, really special kids. I love that. Uh, one other note, and Shane, I'm gonna really need you to step up here. Uh, twice now today, my computer has completely crashed. So I literally think there's something brewing. Yes, Andrea, yeah, you know, we've, luckily we got Shane just in case. So it only takes a couple of minutes to reboot, but I may be interviewing somebody like our incredible next guest or somebody of that nature. So if you just see me freeze and disappear, I uh, just want everybody to know that. I'm not sure what's going on. I'll look to fix that ASAP. Anyway, Shane, how did, the NBA, how did Duke, the NBA career really shape who you are today? Like what learnings or foundational things have you been able to take post MBA career that were actually built at the college or professional level? Forget about early childhood and things of that nature. Things yeah. that you actually learned, uh, whether it's from Coach K or from the NBA or those championships. Well, you know, when I, when I was at Duke, we had any given time, eight to 10 McDonald's All-Americans on the roster. The competition was at such a high level. There was no time for pity. There was no time for excuses. You either, you either performed or you sat down on the bench. And, uh, you know, obviously it's like that in the NBA. And so uh, as, as someone who, look, I'm, I'm not the, the fastest, I'm not the most talented guy, uh, but I am the most competitive mofo out there. Uh, and so you, you really have to, 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 to time me up to keep me out of the game. And uh, that has been my defining factor uh, that no one's so going to- so, so the love of it, 
the love of it, the competitive nature allowed you in some ways, I think about this a lot, allowed you to have the humility to adjust to the realities that you, you know, because obviously in high school, you must've been an uncomfortably dominant player. To your point, you now go to Duke, that becomes a whole new world. Then you go to the tippy top of your profession. Do you feel that your hunger, your desire, your competitive nature actually in a weird way, and we don't talk about competition this way, which I want to, which is why I'm zoning in here, actually led to humility because you figured out, okay, I may not be the top scorer like I was in high school. I need to really figure out these angles, especially defensively. And then as the game became more analytical at the three-point line, is, is that how it kind of played out? Absolutely. I mean, look, when, when Kobe Bryant passed away a few, few months ago, um, I was sad I would never have the, comp- the conversation with him about the way he made me feel. He made me feel alive. On that bus going to Staples Center saying, I got, I got Kobe tonight, I was, I was petrified. I was petrified, but as a competitor, I felt alive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're right. We don't talk about competition enough these days, but, you know, pressure can, uh, you know, make you crumble or it can form a diamond. And, 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 and we don't talk about competition in some of the great things. And we don't talk about competition because we are leaning in, and I love this, to softer skills, empathy, compassion. That's great. Uh, and I do think there is an undercurrent of demonizing competition, which could get very scary if it goes too far. But I'm actually clicking into some of the nuances. I, I will tell you, I promise you, I don't recall ever hearing people talk about humility in the form of competition. And I genuinely think that your manifestation of what I'm knowledgeable enough to know this, I watched heavily and you like, I think that was the under one of the most important ingredients to your success, that the competition actually led to humility, something that only people, people talk only in reverse, bravado, ego. I think competition is, has such beautiful nuances and we've not, we've not looked under that yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. Intellectual humility, competitive humility. You don't know everything, all right? And if you think you know everything, you're gonna get you're whacked across the head, you're done. You're so intellectual humility is a huge component of it. Competitive, there's always someone better than you. I don't care how good you are. 100%. There's someone all right now, you don't know who, who, who that person is. 100%. That, that lady, that guy, may be, they're out there though. Are, when you meet them, are you, are you good enough? And so- Yeah, and in sports where we see it playing out on like business and other places, sometimes you actually do get to number one in the world in tennis. Sometimes you do, you know, are the MVP of the league. But the reality is anybody who ever got there also knows- that they were the 16, the 22, the 24 year old version when somebody else was the MVP. And once you climbed that mountain and you got to the top, that that was actually the beginning of the downfall because that hunger was brewing. Yep, absolutely. It's the, it's the uh, when you have success, you're, you're based on enemies yourself because you assume how, you've done it before, you're gonna do it again. How did your, how did your communication style evolve because I know you were so impactful to teams it's, you know I've, I know guys that have played with you you know how did you you know as a rookie were you did you completely stay quiet that first year was there somebody in your first year that you looked up to or the first two years that you kind of emulated did you know how did it how did it play out for you in the way that you learned your communication style that obviously manifested later in your career as real substantial leadership well, look, it starts with authenticity. You know that. I went from Duke. We won 133 games in four years to the Memphis Grizzlies, who had the lowest winning percentage before North American sports. 
let's talk about a culture shock. Uh, we had a bad culture in Memphis. And I would have been an idiot if I came in there and said, hey, at Duke, we did it this way. You know, at Country Day, one title. No, no one wants to hear that. What you have to prove is that you're about the right things. You're about the team. You're about the, about the health of the team, the health of your teammates. And it's got to be pure. You can't, you can't fake it because people are really good at spotting the imposters. And once you build the authenticity, you know, now you can start to legal words as well as examples. Did anybody stand out early in your career that you're like, oh, I really like the way he navigates his, whether it's quiet leadership, whether it's loud leadership, did anything stand out in that form? I, I was lucky to be a ball boy for the Detroit Pistons growing up. And so wow, I got- to, I didn't know that. I used to watch guys like Grant Hill, uh, Alan Houston, Lindsey Hunter, Don Reed, probably don't know Don Reed, uh, JYD, Junkyard Dog, Jerome Williams. Yeah, Those guys are pros. Mm-hmm. They showed up, they worked, and got out the gym. And so I said, man, if I want to make it, I got to be like these guys. And so uh, it's about the work. It's about the discipline. Um, and it's about consistency. What's, uh, what's on your mind kind of just in general right now? Like, what, what, how have you been navigating the last 100 days, 150 days, like this year? I think, I think 2020 came in hot and decided it was going to be a year that was going to make sure that it was remembered in perpetuity. Yeah. Where, where, what, what's been on your mind lately, whether foundation macro micro heavier light because obviously it's been a heavy year but maybe maybe what's been on your mind is how to win on tiktok i don't want yeah, to put i want to give you the freedom to kind of tell me what's actually on your mind it, it ebbs and flows yeah um, I'll, never, I'll never forget 2020 um, my dad passed away who was a huge influence in my life about uh about, about a month ago um i'm so sorry to hear that and uh oh, thank you he, he was a great man i wouldn't be here without him uh man a few words uh, so that was that was sort of the icing on the cake of of, of everything that we've experienced. But um, I, I truly believe in in chaos grows opportunity, and so I've spent a lot of time just reflecting on on how I live my life, how how strong my relationships are, am I headed in the right direction? How can I improve myself? Um, and so from that standpoint, it's it's been cathartic. Um, look, I wouldn't be here if I don't have a platform. I got to use that platform for social good. It's my responsibility. Um, I can I can help kids who were like me. That's my responsibility. And so um, I'm taking this time very seriously uh, to, to learn from, from great people like yourself and our, and our amazing panelists that we're going to hear from today uh, to, to do what everyone wants to do, help. Let's make the situation better. And let's the team game. I love you for that. I have so many. I mean, I need seven hours. We'll maybe do a <laughs> one-off podcast, me and you at some point. Let's, uh, but I'm going to allow you the incredible luxury of introducing our incredible next guest. And also make sure, just real quick, what your Twitter handle is, because a lot of people are quoting and contacting. I want to make sure they have that. So your Twitter handle and the intro, please. Uh, you can follow me at, uh, at Shane Take Charge, so our foundation, or uh, at Shane Battier uh, on, on Twitter. Awesome. So, so enough, enough about me. Let's get to the real stars of the show today. Our first guest, uh, a really, really impressive uh, woman here, Dr. Jennifer Eberhard. Uh, she is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Stanford University and an author and authority on bias. Through her research on race, bias, and equality, she's focused on how people grapple with race in the criminal justice si- system and in neighborhood schools and workplaces. She's the author of Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes What We See, Think, and Do. We're so excited to welcome our first guest, Dr. Everhard. Uh, we'd love to hear 
uh, all the insights you have to share. Uh, welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for making time for us. Uh, why don't I give you the floor just on the State of the Union, like two, maybe a two-minute rant because these are short uh, uh, sessions on what you're seeing, you know, thoughts, you know, kind of an opening statement. So as a country right now, we're focused mostly on policing when we're thinking about racial bias, when we're thinking about change, the need for system change. But, you know, there's bias, you know, there in, in all of our systems, in our education system, our healthcare system, you know, bias is in the workplace, in our neighborhoods. And so I look at bias across systems and across context. And I try to uncover, you know, you know how it operates and, and how to disrupt it. I appreciate that. How do you view this moment that we're going through right now? Do you view this as such a significant opportunity to move, you know, when, when things are systemic, that you don't fix them in one second. You know, this is, a, this is unfortunately a process that I would argue is in perpetuity because it is in the DNA of the organism. And so, you know, how do you view moments like this? Do you think that these are opportunities? Is this one step backwards, three steps forward? Is this, uh, are you concerned that it's a new cycle and that, you know, within 12 months we're onto something? Like, how do you process that in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this moment feels different, uh, right? I, I think with the uh, death of George Floyd, is especially and you know, all of us witnessing, um, you know, that uh, killing, you know, um, you know, on th that yes. uh, cell phone and I just, I mean, there's a way in which it was, you know, it was such a brazen, um, uh, you know, killing and um, and it was happened at a time where we couldn't just walk away from it. We couldn't just go back to our, you know, daily lives because the whole world had stopped because of COVID-19. And so it forced us to reckon with that. It forced us to um, deal with, with the image we were sit seeking. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was saying to sit with it. Yes. Yes, reflect on it to think about why, why is this happening? Uh, you know, to think about sort of what, you know, what's going on here and, and, and to help people to really understand the need for, for deep change. And so this is the first time I've seen this, you know, in, in my lifetime at, at this level uh, with yes. um, this kind of outrage and, uh, and sustained outrage. Do you, do you believe that that has as much to do with the communications infrastructure that we now have in society where so many more individuals have so much more to say that if the internet was at the maturity level it is today when the Rodney King beating happened that it would then have become that same do you think do you think that's obviously it was extremely brazen but unfortunately we've seen brazen for a very very long time and we've seen things like aforementioned Rodney King do you think that the timing and it's an indicator of some of the incredible things that the internet can do Right. You know, how do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, you're right. I, I think the internet plays a role in terms of uh, people's understanding and the spread of that knowledge about what's going on. I think also, um, you know, technology plays a huge role here. You know, it, it was it was captured yeah. on a cell phone. There was an image right. that we could see that we could attach to, you know, this this wrongdoing. And so that's, that's really important. I do um, a lot of work actually looking at body-worn camera footage um, of, uh, of police officers, right, and analyzing 
utilizing that footage, not just in single incidents, but trying to, you know, take that footage, you know, across thousands of incidents and, and um, sort of understanding it more systematically to try to understand what leads to escalation, uh, right? Um, sort of what are the patterns that are there when officers are speaking to, you know, white people versus black people say when they stop them on the street. So, so that's something that I'm involved in with an interdisciplinary team at Stanford uh, doing. Uh, Professor, next door and do my homework a little bit. What's your relationship okay. there and what are you seeing there? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, next door is, you know, most people know what next door is. It's, you know, this, this uh, online platform uh, and it allows neighbors to gather and share information and so forth. And um, their whole focus is uh, on becoming sort of helping people to, to have neighborhoods that are healthier and safer and so forth. And they found that they were having a problem with racial profiling on the platform. And so someone would look outside their window, they would see a black man and an otherwise white neighborhood neighborhood and they would report him as suspicious or they would shout out to all the, the neighbors, right? Suspicious black man in the neighborhood, even with no evidence of any criminal wrongdoing at all. And so Nextdoor reached out to me. They reached out to other researchers to try to figure out how to curb profiling on the platform. And uh, they realized, you know, that a lot of this, you know, so bias is, becomes activated, you know, when we are just going on our uh, intuition or our instinct about sort of what's going on. And so they realized they were going to have to slow people down. They were going to have to create friction in order to curb profiling. And they did this by creating a, a checklist, basically. So when somebody hit the crime and safety tab to, you know, report a suspicious person, uh, they would get a checklist. And, and one of the items on that checklist is what is this person doing that makes him <laughs> suspicious, right? So it can't be or your her. racial category, yeah, <laughs> right? That makes sure. you suspicious. Yes. So so anyway, they found so so you've seen those signs in the airport, right? If you see something, say something. So they were next door was trying to modify this. If you see something suspicious, say something specific. Because if you double click into what happened at the airports, what happened was if somebody saw a Muslim with individual with a, a long beard, they were reporting when the person was eating a French fry. Right, right. This is, this is the depth of communications power to make people perceive things, period, the end. Right. So you have to figure out a way to slow them down and to get them to rethink uh, right, and so that's what they were trying here. And they found by slowing people down, by adding this friction, they were able to curb racial profiling by over 75% on the platform. So in, in, in some level, a thoughtful filter. Yeah. When, you, when you were talking, I was like, what would that be called if we decided to go at, at, at scale? Almost like a thoughtfulness filter, right? You know, it's like, right. you know, friction normally bad in technology landscape, in this scenario, good. Right, um, that's right. You and you see this also in the policing world. You can use the same kind of approach in terms of how to mitigate bias. Um, so, for example, um, we uh, went into Oakland, um, the Oakland Police Department here in California, and we, a, a number of my colleagues and I helped the police department to reduce the number of stops they made of people who weren't committing any serious crimes, right? And we did this by simply um, adding a question to the form that officers complete when they make a stop. And that question was, is this stop intelligence-led, yes or no? And in other words, do you have prior information to tie this particular person to a specific crime, right? And just adding that question made a huge difference. 
you know, in, in 2017, before that question was added, officers made around 32,000 stops across the city. With the addition of this question during that next year, that dropped to 19,000 stops. And African-American stops alone fell by over 43%. Have you, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if this has hit your radar. Have you done, are you aware of what happened in Camden, New Jersey with the police department, things of that nature? I've been very, you know, obviously I'm a Jersey boy. So I've been very fascinated. Like, you know, I, I really genuinely believe that like love is inches more powerful than fear. And, and I think about it every day. And, and obviously in times, in my 44 years, probably in the last 25 years in my adulthood, like in times like this, whether it's been post 9-11, whether it's right now, I just always think about this incredible fine line between fear and love. It's, mm. amazing, it's amazing what fear, as fear as a seed leads to incredible amounts of negativity. Yes, yes, and I, I agree. And, I, and, I, and that's what gets me into imaging, right? It gets me into like what is being portrayed, you know, Hollywood being a humongous machine for this and now the internet and humans themselves. Just thoughts on that? I don't know. I just, I, I figured, hey, if I got the professor, let me share <laughs> thinking about it. I'd love to get her thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with whatever system we build, even if we build it for good, right? So Nextdoor was building a system for good, but it could be taken over, right? It can be um, sort of used as a vehicle for the expression of bias. And so we want to be really careful about that. Well, that, that leads to the much big, the, the biggest conversation that's going to get in here into this world, which is like right now, Facebook is the energy of so much fury. Meanwhile, WordPress, Squarespace, YouTube, Google, every platform is going through the same thing. We're, we're, we're in this new cycle of picking on Facebook for something that every single thing on the internet has infrastructure for, yeah. and which is going to lead to, can we talk about human accountability right. instead of blaming platforms that are just exposing us, not changing us? Well, they're exposing us, but they can also make us worse. <laughs> they can make us worse or they can make us better. And, and I feel like we but, actually do want leaders to take responsibility here because they create the, the social conditions under which we all live, right? And, and so it's back to, it's back to, to your, step up. It's back to your filter, right? Right. I think the question is, we're spending so much time on digital media, traditional media being better, needs to be an interesting conversation as well, right? You're right, you're right. I mean, you know, we're, we're asking for Facebook or Nextdoor or Twitter to put in filters, yet every single cable station is, you know, breaking news on CNN is a trigger. Like we're, 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 we're giving it an incredible pass to newspapers, radio yeah. and television. I find it fascinating. Thoughts on that? I agree. I agree. And I mean, media is, is, is huge here, but I, I, I guess I, I also want to um, help people to understand that that we play a role here as well. I, I can tell you a, a story about uh, one of my sons when he was just in first grade, right? Um, and he's coming to me asking me, he says, mommy, uh, do you think people feel like a different kind of way about Black people? And I said, why? Why would you say that? And he says, I don't know. I just feel like there's some something different, you know, like there's just something extra special there. And I asked him, I said, well, think about it. And I said, uh, think about the last time you felt that way. And so he thought about it and he says, oh, well, you, you remember the other day we were in a grocery store and a black man came in the grocery store. Now this is in a mostly white neighborhood. He said, a black man came in the grocery store and he said, I realized that people kind of stood away from him a little bit. And it was like he had a giant force field around him. 
right? He was really into you know Star Wars at that moment in time when he was young. And, and he said, and then he stood, you know, this black guy, he stood in line and he said his was the shortest line for, for the long time because people didn't want to um, you know, stand near him, right? And I said, well, why do you think that is? What, what is it? And he thought about it and he thought about it and he looked up at me and he says, I think it's fear. A first grader could get to that, right? And it's not from just watching TV or watching cartoons, right? It's watching us. It's watching 100%. how we move through the world, how we 100%. treat each other, you know? So 100%. so we we are um, oh. producers of this as well. <laughs> You're preaching. Shane, anything, <laughs> to, anything to add to this incredible combo? So, so people want to help but they're paralyzed, they don't know how. What does science say? What does the social research say I can do today to, to correct this? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, we are all vulnerable to bias, but we're not acting on bias all the time. You know, the science has a lot to say about the conditions under which bias is most likely to come alive. And so um, in those examples I gave of, of uh, next door and of the Oakland Police Department, for example, you know, that was about slowing down, you know, uh, to curb bias. That was about asking yourselves the right questions right? It was about calming down. It was about holding yourselves accountable. You know, it, it was, those are the factors. So we not only, I mean, a lot of um, companies and organizations, police departments, even, you know, they'll bring in people to do these implicit bias trainings, but we not only need to inform people about what bias is, we need to change the conditions under which bias is most likely to get activated. And so that's where we need to push towards. Powerful. Professor, thank you so much for your for your time with us. We too limited, but unbelievably appreciated. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon, Shane. Our next guest, Mr. Adrian Parker, who is the global vice president of marketing for Patron Tequila, which you may know, they've <laughs> heard of, uh, where he combines battle-tested management experience with digital transformation expertise to lead a powerful brand. He is passionate about creating contagious ideas that grow people and profit by transforming customer experiences. He is a leader not only in his executive role, but also in his community and in how he is raising his little ones. We are so happy to have Adrian with us here today. Welcome, Adrian. Hey, Shane. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that gracious introduction. And hey, Gary V. What's up, man? Good to chat. Really good to see you. Really good to chat. So, Adrian, uh, first of all, I think a lot of people can use some tequila nowadays. So I'm, I'm hoping business is good. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's just get right into probably the million dollar question in this world. You know, brands during times like this, this is not something that we thought about, you know, when you and I were growing up. You know, you, you look back at history, you know, and now there's just an incredible... Um, I would argue thirst on the consumer level for for brands, but it's wildly complicated. You know, Professor Jennifer, you know Shane, I we're a, we're a group of one in our actions and our thoughts. You know, you're not Patron; yeah. you're a major cog, but you're talking about an enormous amount of opinions, constituents. How does a brand navigate when there are 40, 50, 60 cooks in the kitchen? which then almost inevitably leads to no action. How do you actually get to action or is no action? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's the billion dollar questions, uh, quite frankly, in terms of not only 
how we um, impact change in our communities, but also in our corporations. And you're right. I mean, I'm one cog uh, in a, a very big machine. You know, think about the spirits industry in the United States. We're about 4% African-American. Think about how much spirits or alcohol consumed by African-Americans, right? And, and so that's just the business side. Look at our communities where um, we, we profit, right, from, from consumer groups. But also, I'm a father, right? I, I'm raising three little Black kids. I'm married to um, a, a, a Black wife. And so I think for us, it touches on so many things. And none oh of us God. had a pandemic brief. And quite frankly, most brands, unless you're maybe Ben & Jerry's, had a social justice brief. And so we're all learning, like, by ear, how to use our advantages and whatever privileges we have to bring to bear for this important issue. So what role does a, you know, a nice handcrafted tequila company have in social justice? I'd say if you asked me three months ago, I'd say maybe none, to be quite, to be quite frank. I'd say now with our um, new, I think, awareness of what role we actually have to play in enacting justice, I think it really is about holding ourselves to our truest and most honest values. If you look at all of our corporate statements and our missions, et cetera, all we talk about is our purpose, being bigger than products, being bigger than profit. And now we actually have an opportunity to bring that to bear. And so we absolutely have to do that in our own backyards with how we hire, um, how we retain talent, how we nurture the African-American community, but also people of color, but also how we act, where we invest our money, our time, our efforts. So it's, a, it's very much a big opportunity for us to move beyond being a brand but be really more human, being more kind, being more brave, and being more bold. Adrian, on that more human part, one of the, you know, I've been spending an enormous amount of time with a lot of different people one-on-one, nobody's, -on -one, you know, between COVID and Black Lives Matter and things of that nature. One of the things that I think is just completely unspoken to, and maybe you can shed some incredible light on this. I've just been, um, it's, it's something I've always kind of been aware of just with my social circles, but actually being a Black man in a power position now, you know, Speak to me about the enormous subconscious and maybe conscious pressure you feel of finding the right balance. You know, I'm sure you know, you've lived your whole life where you've known that your words, because you're black in this environment is going to be different. It just is. And so here, you know, as one friend said to me, he's like, Gary, my biggest problem right now is I wanna go 150 miles an hour. And I know if I go 60 miles an hour, everybody on my team, is gonna think that I'm going 150 miles an hour, right? Like, I don't wanna come across, quote unquote, I don't wanna come across as the angry. And when he said this, it broke my soul because I completely, it was a one-on-one -on -one talk. He said, I don't wanna seem opportunistic. And I stopped him. I was like, my man, you're not being opportunistic. You, unfortunately, for the way the structure is, and it's the same way for, you know, Jewish Europeans, because that's the DNA there. And it, you can go around the world. Here, that's the case for black Americans. like this is an important moment to move the ball as far down the field as humanly possible. Do you, I mean, it's a really tough question, but do you feel that feeling where you have to, where you literally, unfortunately, something I don't feel, I go full throttle what I believe. Do you feel like you have to control it to get it to move, otherwise it tilts? Yeah, I'd say the guard dog protecting racism in America specifically isn't racist people, it's realistic people. You're too nice, you're too conservative, you're too um, politically correct to actually attack white supremacy. And so as a black male in corporate environments and in America, you know, most of us, my father, my grandfather, we succeeded and we protest by being successful, right? So it was assimilation, which meant be more white, 
it was um, exceptionalism, be more worthy, and it was compliance, which meant be quiet. And I think we built careers out of, out of that in mostly white male-dominated uh, organizations. And I say, I think part of the challenge is this is very real, right? I think we're talking within the context of marketing, but these are real lives, real oh, black real. bodies, and real futures. Real. So I think it's, about, it's... Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I think, think about Tatiana Jefferson. She was shot in a home that was miles away from where I grew up, a block away from the church my dad works at right now. Ahmaud Arbery was gunned down 10 minutes from where my little brother uh, went to training uh, for, for, for military. Um, I'm three times more likely to be killed by cops. Uh, my wife is four times more likely to die because of complications from childbirth. My little cute daughter, Chloe, is four times more likely to be suspended. And my son is, you know, six times more likely to be locked up. Not because they're uneducated, poor, or anything. It's because they're Black. And so that's a very real reality. And so when we bring that to corporate organizations, I think the conflict is this. You don't become a CEO, CMO, or C-suite by being by uh, rocking the boat, right? You, you're, you're realistic, you're predictable, you're, you've you're in a box. You're in a pocket. You're in a exactly. box. You, you follow the plan. Yeah, you follow the plan for shareholders, consumers, yep. employees, right? Um, the reality is the um, systems that allow discrimination or inequality, maybe not to flourish, but to at least remain, you know, I think, uh, unconfronted, those same systems and mindsets are incapable of attacking it head on. And I, I think we've got to start having those conversations. We ha- starting to you know, do you know, you, you know what's funny? And everybody can have them. I had a friend yeah. who, great, wonderful person, uh, and was said, I don't believe in the assimilation conversation. I'm like, have you ever gone into a heavy black owned business? Have you gone to a cool business yeah. in music and sports that is owned and run by a black person and is predominantly black and paid attention to how the white person is dressed and acting? Of course it's real. You know, of course it's real. It's just the nature of human behavior. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I had a chance to talk to uh, this was four years ago. I went to a conference and I met um, a young man. He was the godson of David Duke, who, you know, grand wizard of the KKK, white nationalist, et yep. cetera. And he, re- he spent most of his teenage and young adult life recruiting for white nationalist organizations. And he shared with us the two indicators that someone would be open to either not maybe not uh, you know, maybe uh, holding a Confederate flag or putting a, a, a you know, a, a KKK hood on, but it was, it, he could change their vote and change their mind by two things. The first one was, do you mostly prefer to only be around white people that look like you? A, a little thing like that. And two, if I share racist or stereotypical jokes, memes, or stats, all black people are lazy, et cetera, do you correct me? And he knew if, he did want those two things that you would be at least engaged enough where he could have a conversation. Open. Yeah, you're, open. you're open, right? And so I think so many of us and Martin Luther King Jr., I think towards the end of his life, I think this is what he lamented is that, you know, the biggest barrier to change was like the white moderate, right? It's this population of this, the middle of the country. You don't want to offend someone. And so, because our goal wasn't equality. Our goal was just decency. Like, let's be less bad to black people. And as corporations just, and brands, we can't do that any longer. Like like Chris Rock said, just matter. We're not even yeah. asking except just fucking yeah. matter. Yeah. Shane? Adrian, you are active in... Uh, Sports Outreach Institute, you know, and you're a caring father. What, what role do sports play in, in social justice here? 
and not maybe not the professional level, but at the at the grassroots level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sports is a universal language, right? You know, um, I've been in parts of Africa, Honduras, etc. You don't have to speak the language. You don't have to have any money. You walk out with a soccer ball, and it's game on. Yes, right, sir. and soccer and sports like that bring people together, and so I've seen firsthand the the power of using sport and interaction to get into a community, but re, to, to meet real physical needs. Right, it's food, it's shelter, it's clothing. I think a, a lot of countries, um, you know, they're they're fighting for their lives on a daily basis, and I think if you bring that philosophy to, I think a sports analogy to to go with that would be uh, what, two years ago I sprained my ankle, severe sprain. I mean that um, the left ankle was turned sideways. And I went to a doctor who gave me uh, medicine and crutches, right? So medicine and crutches. So I had less pain and I had less discomfort, but I wasn't getting healthy, right? So I had no mobility. And so I went to a sports doctor, which I should have went to from the beginning, as, as you probably know. He said, well, if you're, you were achieving the results you were aiming for, if your goal was to be less in pain and less discomfort, you got it. But your goal is to get back up and running, to get functional. And so I think a lot of our uh, diversity and inclusion efforts, a lot of our charitable efforts, a lot of our um, philanthropic efforts have been really crutches and painkillers. We've been treating um, diversity, we've been treating inequality as if it's um, a, a black problem to manage versus a American or white problem to solve. And I think we've got to bring that to bear. And I think sports ha has, a, has a role. I think brands have a role in not only starting the conversation, but helping to enact change with you know, how we spend our money, how we hire, how we recruit, but how we operate ourselves, even in our communities. Adrian, on the brand side, what is your favorite, most tangible, least friction, quickest, most obvious, practical solution? Expand your table. If you're making a decision for your community, your church, nonprofit, for-profit or business, and everyone around the table looks like you, it's the wrong table. Expand your table, bring voices, um, male, female, black, white, bring them to the table. Uh, right now, there are, uh, my guess is there are lots of companies having lots of tough discussions about what they're gonna do. 100%. And at that table, there's not, it's not a lot of guys that look like me. Uh, there's not a lot of guys that look like doctor here. And so, or women that look like doctor. And I think we've right. gotta start to open and expand that table. So we allow even uh, different points of view into the table at the point we're making decisions, at the point we're spending our dollars. How much opportunity do you think the internet gives for the creation of the tables? That, 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 that's what, the part, you know, when Me Too was hot and heavy, I, I, you know, I, I, I invested in a lot of diverse, you know, I got lucky is the word I'm gonna use of being born in the Soviet Union coming here. I, mean, I had a very kind of different thing going on. And that allowed me to subconsciously invest in black entrepreneurs and women and me too came along and I said, and breaking through, get to the table, get to the table. And literally like on my one-on-ones, I'm like, fuck them, build your own, like let's build, fuck, keep your fucking table. Like, let's just take over, the like be the table. Like, like, you know, how much are you thinking about, how much do you think about what is the, you know, I, I do believe the internet is crazy. Like slow and steady, No, the internet doesn't know your name, can't check your, you know, who you are. Like, I really believe in it, I genuinely do. And like, how much of the conversation do you believe potentially we could be talking about of, and by the way, back to Dr. Jennifer's point, systematically, it's, I mean, there's kids that don't have internet. Good, Gary, you like internet? There's kids, like, I'm not confused to the data, but I do think that there's a big pocket 
that instead of trying to, like I'm trying to convince a lot of my friends who do have internet, who do have a cell phone, who do have a couple dollars in savings. I'm like, fuck trying to like t- convince them to let you at the table. Let's go fucking build your own tables. Thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree. I think, uh, you know, the roots of uh, racism or inequality in our country weren't just evil uh, rednecks who had a like a bias or a steam agenda. It was economic, right? And so the economic roots still have these large impacts. And I think the absolute opportunity is for is businesses to invest in um, under uh, underrepresented or, or marginalized um, communities, but also for our communities to start to ha- build our own tables, build our own seats. And I think you've seen such a great influx in minority-owned businesses. You know, African American women, you know, are much more educated right now than African American men. They're taking advantage of education. They're also starting businesses and startups, et cetera. While I think the challenge is this, though, because we don't have the same access to capital, et cetera, it's still, you know, you still got to work. The, and by the, the way, black tax is still there. You got to work twice as hard. Yeah. Oh, um, twice. You're being very kind. Let's get unpolitically correct. I was going to say Cinex, twice. But, you know, I, didn't go too hard fucking, I don't know what's, give me some real fucking number. But, but I will say this, and this is, now we're going very, I'm going to kind of shift it for a second into entrepreneur land. In parallel, and, I, and behind the scenes, you don't see this viewers, but I still have everybody who's been on or potentially on in the back room. And I saw, you know, uh, Professor Jennifer shaking her head about the access to capital. One thing I'm trying to interject into the conversation is the whole VC game is broken anyway. 99% of those things are, I've got a lot of people saying, I want to raise cap, you know, help me raise capital. I'm like, I'm going to give you 1500. I did this with somebody the other day. I'm going to give you $1,500. I want you to buy sports cards and stuff to flip on. I want you to learn how to make money because the capital is teaching people how to build raising capital machines, not actual businesses. And so I'm seeing, you know, and I'm very kind of practical too. Like, I'm like, man, this is big stuff. Like all of us are crippled by the enormity of it. Let's not get it confused. I'm like, I'm not going to convince Silicon Valley overnight. You know what's about to happen. We all know what's about to happen. They're going to invest a little bit more right now to point to it. But we're talking about systematic stuff. I think if we can change the conversation systematically to learn how to make money by buying something and selling something, starting with $100, all of a sudden the whole thing could get interesting. And so it's really funny. This is a matrix conversation because you need like 47 fronts to be talked about. And I think one of the most powerful one is no question, more capital needs to be brought in because there's so much opportunity. You know, I'm colorblind when it comes to business. Like, you know, when when Baldwin Cunningham came to me, he's a nice, pretty black boy. But I was like, no, no, he's going to fucking win. I didn't give a shit about, you know, you know, and to me, I think, we need more of that, but on the flip side, we also have to talk more about, let's not think that raising capital is this great thing. Let's learn how to make money instead of raising it, which becomes very practical on an internet-based world that might lead to some opportunities. So it's a, it's a double front of, of yeah. that that I think could lead to a really good, ex- it's kind of like your world of on-premise and off-premise. I've yeah. always felt people in the liquor business either care too much about the restaurants or too much about the stores. And it's always a balanced attack where you actually build a massive brand. Yeah, I think you're right. And one thing, think of, I've been in microloan organizations, right? Where like literally a thousand dollars changes someone's life and Correct. From to Dallas, et cetera. And I think we focus so much of that on though poverty alleviation. So we were trying to make it less bad for people. I think now it shifts to how do we create prosperity? So it's like, how do they build businesses that their kids can inherit? So not only feeding them week to week, 
but actually like building prosperity and ownership, et cetera. So I, I absolutely think, yeah, absolutely. And to me, and to me, and maybe because Shane's here, but like it's been music and sport that has helped so much create that structure. And I'm trying to think of a systematic, you know, like back to Shane's point, I mean, like, you know, back to privilege, like, you know, and, and Shane touched on it. And I, you know, like I'm watching, uh-oh, there we go. Oh, my back, nice. And Shane touched on it. Like the privilege of being six, eight is real. And so what I'm trying to figure out is how to make everybody have some level of privilege. And the thing that I think most gives that a chance is the internet itself. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think the internet allowed scale like social networking did to uh, technology. I absolutely agree. And we all have a privilege, right? That we all have a power and don't be ashamed or guilty of it. Use the heck out of it to help someone else. I think so much of our efforts have been so uh, profit-based that we've missed opportunities. And I think a lot of our focus as a brand is on like, how do we give back? You know, our founder had a saying, uh, success unshared is failure, right? Like, so we're successful here, but how successful can you be if you're not helping someone else out? And it really just goes back to empathy, awareness, but also action, acting. Gratitude, gratitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the basics. A hundred percent. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us, really. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Adrian. Up next, I want to welcome Ms. Noor Tanguri, who's a 26-year-old entrepreneur garnering international praise as one of new media's most influential voices. Noor's innovative storytelling spans across media, emphasizing subcultures and marginalized communities in the U.S. Her documentary and subsequent podcast series, Sold in America, Inside Our Nation's Sex Trade, received a 2019's Gracie's Award for Best investigative series. Noor is a tour and speaker and brand consultant focused on identity, representation in media, and breaking barriers through storytelling. Her company, her company, At Your Service, AYS, is recognized for an innovative approach to fostering relationships across lines of difference, helping companies like Nivea, Google, Prada, and SAP. Noor, welcome. Hi, how are you? Thank Great. you for having me. Hi, Noor. Hi. It's so I'm nice so to see you. so happy to be here. This is awesome. Thanks for being on. Obviously, you and I have a great friendship and interact for a long time. I'm just very proud of you. And why Thank don't you, you give why don't you give two, three minutes on things on your mind? We'll open it up and then I'll ask you a couple of questions. What are Ooh. you what are you seeing out there? How are you thinking? How are you feeling? So I actually just um, I just got off of on a conversation. I've been doing like a daily talk show called At Your Service Hour every day with people thinkers, leaders that we need to be learning from. So I just spoke to Kimberly Drew, who is an author and uh, is a curator in the art world. And we were talking about the importance of content versus context. And so that's something that's been on my mind a lot lately because um, I think not only is it important for us to understand that when we put out content, that there needs to be context and understanding where people are coming from and how people will be receiving what we're putting out. But as viewers, as listeners, as consumers, the importance of perspective and seeing people for who they are and understanding that unless context is clarified in whatever it is that we are listening to or watching, that we will never truly know the person. And so our judgments and our opinions um, when they're so strong, don't hold weight. And I think that we overvalue opinion today so much and people uh, who 
are not a part of an experience or not a part of a community are so hard on, you know, this is what I believe and this is what's true to me instead of taking a backseat and being able to sit with the discomfort of not knowing all the time and actually understanding the context in which someone is coming from and the context in which they are receiving. So I've, I've been thinking a lot this week specifically about content versus context and the importance of that when we talk about representation and the stories we're telling. I love that. So what? Um, let's talk about uh, storytelling and leadership from the perspective that you and I have talked about in the past, like at your service, like how do you, how do you think about storytelling and leadership from the filter of, of service? Well, I think that when you, if our intention in all of the work that we do is that we want people to be seen, heard and valued and that we have something to offer, even in, a capitalist world. Like if we have something to offer and we want somebody to believe in our brand, to believe in our story, to believe in our product, to believe in our message, then it, I believe that the best way to do that is through the lens of service, through the lens of saying, I do see you, I hear you, I value you. And I, this is what I have to offer. These are my skill sets. These are my talents. This is the product that I have. And I want to be of best service to you. And so when you ask that, or if you make that intention, the next step to that is how can I best be of service to people? And as a storyteller, and I, I feel like if you are in the space of marketing or brand or messaging or whatever, we are all storytellers. The best way to do that is through listening with intention. So I think that if you are a conscious leader, you are a leader who believes in impact and in in longevity and in depth in whatever it is that you're sharing, um, we have to listen attentively and intentionally and ask ourselves if we're listening to respond, if we're listening to fix something, or are we just listening because these people deserve to be listened to and because I want to work to earn their trust. So as a journalist, and now even as a consultant, I always ask myself the question, how is the way that I cover this story? How is the way that I tell this story going to impact the person or the community that we are talking to? And so I think that that's really important to keep in mind when you're thinking through the lens of service. And then the entry point to that, there are several entry points, of course, but the entry point that I like to stick to because we live in, in an incredibly divisive world, especially online, is what is the least common denominator that I have with this group of people? What is the, the entry point of commonality that I can find? Is it that, you know, I enjoy- the You're a human? Form? What about just being a human? Well, that's, so- I, I mean, really, I mean, really. With, like a higher thing. And then I say, you know, and when it's really hard and I can't figure out exactly what it is, my entry point is that we are all breathing the same air, that we are all live like we are all existing in the same space, that we all came from the same thing. Um, so or, real quick, to, I just want to jump on something you said that I've been spending yeah, a ton of, of time on. You said divisive world, obviously, you know, uh, being shown so much, but you said, especially online, do you believe that, you know, I'm a big believer that what online is doing is just exposing. You know, it's a, it's a lot easier to be a tough guy on a keyboard than in somebody's face. Sure. And that because we didn't have it before, a lot of the actual thoughts were just hidden because now everything's just being documented. That we're not especially more de divisive and whatever we are online 
it's just the exposure of who we actually are. Thoughts? Um, I agree with you to a small extent. Okay. And the reason for that is because I don't think most of us are independent thinkers because of online. And so- right. but, but, if, be, but real quick, before then, if we're not independent thinkers, then what we had was Walter Cronkite or David Jennings or, or the yeah. Beast, right? Like, like, I'm just very curious about how you see this. Totally. I mean, Walter Cronkite was one of the most objective journalists of our time. And he, inter- like he introduced, or one, was one of the journalists who introduced the fact of reporting just the facts. So the thing about today and I, I mean, I have a whole theory on objectivity and if it even exists today and if it should, but I think that today you can have people, you, the, people are being exposed a hundred percent for what they think, for what they feel, but it's being exacerbated by the fact that everybody, it's hive mentality. Everybody wants to know, like when you, before you tweet. But did, did, did hive mentality exist before just in a much smaller pocket? Was it you and your uncles? Yeah, I mean that's the echo chamber that you lived well, in. Well, that's, right? that's 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 the punchline. The punchline is the harm that's being done. The harm that's being done today is that before you even take before you are even presented the story or the facts, before you're presented the facts, you are bombarded with different perspectives and opinions. And then you are shamed into thinking one thing. And then you can never actually sit with yourself and say, is this what I actually think? I think that's different from growing up and talking politics and talking religion and talking whatever in your household. And, you know, I think this way because this is what I grew up with. But I mean, at a Because I think, because I think, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties, I thought different things than family members and other things. And people tried to shame me into seeing it, you know, the second, you know, it's a very interesting game of, is it a, is the masses doing it more than four influential people in your circle? Or less. It's just interesting. I don't. I, I don't think it's a. It's a wrong right question. But I, I, it's I, something that I really feel passionately about, though. Because me too. Really me too. By the way, in the <laughs> no, opposite. In the opposite direction. Like, like I, I get it. But there's always been influences. And, there has and, always been influences. But you're also talking about. You're because I. Where's I where's where's accountability? Happen. Where's accountability in this conversation? Exactly, and you like can't the, the, this whole notion that I'm a bad person because my uncle or because of Twitter fucking sucks. Yes, but here's the thing: accountability, like, and that's why I said that your opinion and your judgment does not hold weight if you don't have full context. The fact of the matter is, unless you are sitting down with people who are a part of that community, unless you're doing the the work and educating yourself and doing the unlearning, you aren't going to get there. And that to me, it's like a majority of the opinions that you are seeing online take up space. It's noise. It's not fair. And it's unproductive to so many people who are doing the work on the ground. So what's, what's the solution of that? The solution of that is shutting up and listening. It's like that's very that's that's very nice, but no, no, that's no. like okay. Let me continue though. Go ahead. So it's it's making a commitment to learn, making a commitment to listen, and then stepping away at times. Like I I practice, I try to I do my best to like stay off of social media and stay off of the internet when when things are erupting because I find it important to myself 
that I need to one, educate myself on matters. And then two, more important for me to sit with myself and try to come up with what my actual thoughts are on this instead of just seeing what my echo chamber yep. is echoing and Love. then being tied to that. But like it does, but why the, the, why do we feel so entitled to have to voice our opinions all the time? Why don't we just actually amplify? And this is why I always say like, I've never said um, I want to give a voice to the voiceless. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has a story. My job is to make sure that you know that you have a story and a message that deserves to be heard. And also that that story and your truth is the message that needs to be amplified. My job is to amplify your truth. My job isn't to sit there and amplify people's opinions who have never even touched on this experience, who have never spent the time, who have never made the commitment, who have never done the unlearning. And that's what's happening is the, it, the, we're the, bringing people onto these platforms who don't deserve to have their their opinions heard in this space because they have no relation to the community they're trying to talk but, about. But the, I, I, listen, I'm such a buyer of your thoughtfulness on this. I think the question becomes, you know, when you say things like don't deserve to be heard on these things, the problem is you and I, with our points of view, don't get to decide that. Other humans do. You know that, Shane? Yeah. Nora, I love what you said about finding the, the least common denominator as a journalist. Yeah. How do you help companies authentically find that? Mm, that's a great question. I think the most, the first thing that you do is you ask them what is what what is your what are your values and what is the purpose that you that you have in this moment like why are you doing what you're doing why is it so important for you to sell this product to push this message what is the story you're trying to tell i think oftentimes before you can even start trying to insert yourself and trying to connect with other people you actually have to recheck your intention and you have to understand what your story is. And I don't think a lot of companies and brands really know what their story is because oftentimes the story lies in the product that they're trying to push out instead of the message and the feeling of inclusivity that they want people to feel. So if we get through the intention and then we get through the story, in the story you can extract values and find people that align with those values. So even when I decide to work with a brand, for instance, my like my first thing is okay. What is the thing that you want me to work on with you? Is this a, is this a campaign? Is this consulting? Is this is this help figuring out your story? What are the values? What are the things that are most important to you? And do they align? And if they don't align with my personal like something that I can I believe in or I can see good in, then I will say like this. I'm not the best person for this. There's going to be somebody better for you. And I think it's really important to be in a position to be able to say no to jobs and no to opportunities because you recognize in yourself that you've done the work and you know that you're not the best person for this. Yeah. But once you collaborate with somebody with, who, whose values align with you, you get to move forward and you get to say, okay, who are the people that we're trying to reach? We're trying to, we're trying to reach a community that, um, that has this story, but it's, it's been misrepresented or been misinterpreted in the media. Well, my entry point is I have spent most of my life being misidentified or misrepresented. And I know what that feels like. And that's, that, that's like my entry point. A lot of times, for instance, you mentioned my series sold in America. I investigated, I spent two and a half years investigating the sex trade in the, the United States. And one of the, and sex workers in general, like are a really hard group of people to build trust with. 
rightfully so Jeez, because they because they not only have they been misrepresented or mistreated or all of those things but because as a society like we we have just done done so wrong by them so it's incredibly hard to build trust there is a a trans sex worker that i interviewed and i remember she said to me you know i wrote a blog post many years ago about how I related to Muslim women who wear the hijab more than anyone because society was so obsessed with how we dressed. And that her saying that came from like me having the conversation with her about, you know, like, I just want to say thank you so much for giving me this time because I know it's hard to trust people. And I want you to know that I'm not going to run with your story. I'm not going to do these things. I know what that's like. And then she led with that. And that was our foundation. Now, granted, that's like a really incredible foundation to build off of because it was a foundation of trust that happened pretty quickly. But that takes investing time in. Like there, there, there's been, an, an, in an opposite um, perspective, I remember during that series, I flew myself out to Las Vegas and I spent a full day with a group of sex workers before I brought my team out to film the interview. And I spent a full day building trust with them, hearing them, listening to them. And then when I brought my team out, we spent nine hours in a car outside in like a hundred some degree weather and they wouldn't open the door and they decided that they weren't comfortable doing the interview. And it was like, we had already, and I have to say like, you know what? That's okay. Everybody is entitled to whether or not they want to share their story, but I did the work, I invested the time and I did what I could. And if yep. you're not willing to invest the time and, 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 and this, when it comes to marketing and brands, it's literally taking that journalistic integrity and using that as a blueprint for anything story related when you are trying to build trust with the community. And if you are able to do that, people will be disarmed. They will be able to understand that you actually care, which at the end of the day, you should actually care. If your intention is to serve a community, you, you have to be able to get to a point that, that you care. And that is never done through a lens of loss. You are never, never losing never. when you actually care and you actually invest in the people that you are trying to serve because that not only does that garner trust and loyalty, but you also find so many more doors that open up for opportunity because when one community says, gives you like, you know, credibility and they're like, no, they do their work. They, they spend time building trust. They see us, they, whatever it becomes, it's like spreads like wildfire because it's not common to see people do something with such intention and, and take the time to really invest in the story behind what it is they're trying to sell. I love it, Nor. I, I always love when we get the jam. I'm really proud of you. I hope you're well. Thank you. Thanks for being on. Shane. Nor, thanks so much. I'd like to introduce our next guest today, Mr. Matthew McCarthy, who is the CEO of Ben & Jerry's. You may have heard of it. Uh, <laughs> Hi, how are you? Global brand that continually breaks the rules on how business can be a force for good in the world. He steers and serves a global team of passionate ice cream aficionados and aspiring activists and is responsible for Ben & Jerry's longstanding three-part mission of delivering economic product and social mission impact in all of the communities and countries where the company operates. Matthew, welcome. Hi, how are you? Matt, how are you, my man? It's good to see you, stranger. What's cooking? 
always good to see you, stranger. Just uh, <laughs> full disclosure, this is one of my favorite humans. We worked together when he was on Axe. We've had we've had some of the most fun. I, I, you know, the best thing in being in business is you make so many friendships. We've literally had drinks and breakfasts where it was supposed to be about business, and we end up in outer space for an hour. And I love it every time. And I and I'm really happy you're here. How are you? Very well. I'm I'm fortunate. I'm lucky. Uh, we're we're doing all right. Thanks. Talk to me about brand accountability. You know, I think, you know, somebody mentioned earlier, maybe it was uh, Adrian, like maybe besides Ben and Jerry's, every brand is trying to figure out its social mission in its depth. They've done some tactics, but it's not in their soul. Um, You have the beneficiary of being the steward of a brand that has it in their DNA, their soul. How do you think about it? What are you seeing? What have you seen? What are some observations? Uh, thanks for having me, and and it's good seeing both of you guys. This is I get get I get asked this a lot actually, and I think the first thing I'd say is it would be a big big screw up for anybody to say, well, businesses like Ben and Jerry's can do it because you know the two guys that started that business they were they were hippies in Vermont, and they can do that. That is that is a delegation uh, 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 and a disempowerment, and so. What I'm trying to do these days is to actually show the stuff I'm getting wrong, uh, particularly as a white dude of a lot of privilege who spent most of his life not understanding really the concept of white privilege um, and trying to put our mistakes, my my screw-ups out there to hopefully pull back the veil a bit. I don't think the world needs any more great stories or videos or cry-and-buy videos about how great any company is. I think what we need to be doing is to be supporting each other, particularly if you're a white person running an organization and you're trying to figure out what the hell to do. Uh, your authenticity doesn't come from what you say. It comes from the stuff you do. And our values drive what we do as people. It's very, it's kind of, if A equals B, B equals C, then A equals C. And so I, I, I really feel for, and, and sometimes angry when I see businesses going through the machinations about what should their agency help them do? Or right. what should, it's like, well, what do no, you listen, want to I do? Mean, l- listen, I mean, listen, I mean, obviously Vayner's got a lot of clients and during the show, everyone came to me and they're like, what do we tell our clients? I'm like, you ask them what they believe. <laughs> you know, I mean, like we're in the service business. We're, you know, to your point, go ahead, Matt. No, I just, uh, I, it, it sounds very simple. We're not taught to do this as business people, right? There's the business and there's the brand and then maybe there's our product or our service and then there's our heritage. The problem is that structural racism is in the heritage. It's everywhere. There's structural racism in Ben and Jerry's. doesn't mean we're running around being vocal racists. That's not the point. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it, the more I learn about the whole iceberg model that you know, kind of overt racism is the part above the water. Yep. Structural racism is the gigantic part underneath. And you just got to ask yourself and do the due diligence. Why is it that way? And, and, and it's important that when people hear you, you know, this is what always happens. When you make the statements you just made, a lot of people feel like it's casting judgment on them. They're literally on the other side of watching this video right now and saying, I'm not racist. It's, it's not about that. There's no confusion that the far majority of people are well-intent individuals. This is about, I always talk about it. This is not the cherry mm-hmm, on top mm-hmm. of the cupcake. It's the fucking batter that made the cupcake and it's, and it's okay. And by the way, I have unlimited white friends that grew up in massive poverty in trailer parks and had no fucking privilege by the way we accounted. Like everybody's scenario is different. I have unlimited black friends who grew up with all sorts of fucking money in the bank and BMWs at 13. Like there's all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. Just acknowledging its truth without taking it personally. Yeah. 
That's a toughest thing. I mean, when the first is I had someone, I, I was on a call with our franchises. We get hundreds of franchisees in our scoop shops, an incredible network. It's an incredible part of the Ben and Jerry's business that we, when we hire like 10,000 scoopers a year, we touch tens of millions of people through our scoop shops. It's, it's, it's a real, it's a big privilege to be part of an organization that was born as a delicious. scoop shop. Also it, well, it's a little pricey. <laughs> you guys are premium. You know, I go in and get yeah. a little something for a whole lot of, but I appreciate it because it's quality. It's just like wine. So I don't judge it, but it, it's delicious, Matt. Some of my the favorite tweets that I've seen out there recently is, yeah, the stuff's expensive. Damn it. Because here's what they do with that money. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm like, yes, yes yeah. yeah. Uh, the, yep. uh, but I, got, I get this question like defund the police. Did you have to say it that way? Or dismantling a white supremacist culture. Did you have to say it that way? Are you comfortable with that? Well, the answer is the first time I heard those terms, I was like, no. First time someone said to me, man, we got a white supremacy culture here and white supremacy structures. My initial reaction was exactly what you described. Whoa, whoa, I'm not a white supremacist. So white people, and I'm not saying I'm over it. I am not wagging the finger. I'll be the first one to say, I don't know what I'm doing. Often, I have no idea what I'm doing. I got 30 years of business experience. I think I know business pretty well. Lots to learn there too. You also know but, hair well. You know hair uh, well. I know you, Matthew. You take down that bun right now, and everyone's gonna get fired up. Uh, it's Don't not gonna happen, from... brother. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> uh, but the thing was, this last part of that sentence is just like, if I wait until I think I'm ready, I you'll be dead. Guarantee you, I will dead. have waited too long. I will have squandered the opportunity, the privilege that I have, leading a business. And and so to me, it's like. If I wait till I feel I'm ready, I guarantee you that's doing it wrong. Nah. You said Shane? That's a, that's a great phrase, squander the opportunity. I love that. Question for you. Is it, how bad is it, is it for, for companies to fake like they're interested in <laughs> changing the, this, the system? Is, is it better to be silent or is it better to fake authenticity and caring? Oh, jeez. Ow! Um, <laughs> come on, Shane. I mean, you know, that's a good, I think there's, what, what do you mean, I mean Matt? That's I'm a good. Sorry. What's, your, what's your favorite flavor? Okay, is that, that was is a, that, that was that was a, no, that was a good. I love it. That was a I good fucking question, Matt. Answer the fucking question. Don't blame Shane. So uh, no, I'm not Shane. I'm not trying to be a jerk. Um, uh, I it's it, it. Maybe we should ask more obvious fucking questions. Um, you know, we we got a world of hyper transparency. Uh, People don't believe that we have a crisis of trust in the world around us. None of us are trusting the government or businesses or the media or any of that stuff. So um, businesses have always acted by their values. It's called lobbying. Businesses have always done things. The issue at hand right here is that the, the stuff going on, the pandemics on pandemics, are piercing that fake veil between our humanity, our human lives, and our business lives. And it's much more comfortable to live in a world where there's this nice shroud around the business world. We don't need to kind of pretend that we're humans at the same time, but like, like Wizard of Oz, man, yes, mind the man behind the curtain. So it, businesses that don't put their values out there are simply lying. So to your question, if they're, they're hiding them. They're either lying or they're hiding them. So you can, you can either put your head down in the foxhole, that's like death for a business and a brand. Pretend that's a faster death. So I guess I'd say that, not putting your values out there, you're dead, you probably don't know it. Putting out there and faking it, you're just prolonging the inevitable, which is the death of your brand. Hmm. Shane, keep going. 
without what what's your favorite uh flavor of ben and jerry's a little, little lighter a little lighter uh Matthew. Oh, man um it's tough i'd say that uh fish food like my wife and i if we had desert island like desert island it would be fish food it's just and i mean we also have peanut butter half baked out right now so we've got half baked one of our biggest flavors but we did a limited edition a few years ago called peanut butter half baked that's out there now it's I don't know. I, those are two. I'd say like in the new Netflix flavor is also killing. It, so I'm back to the fast. I'm back to the fastball. So you gave a really <laughs> eloquent answer about a corporate responsibility. Um, do your C level executives have that coming in? Do they learn that from being around you and being around the company? How does that, how does that grow at, at the highest level? Um. I'd say a couple of things. So speaking kind of the world I'm in now with Ben and Jerry's, uh, we have um, some folks on my leadership team who've been around for decades. They've been part of Ben and Jerry's. My, my chief marketing officer, Dave Stever, started as a scooper over 30 years ago. I've got other folks like uh, Dave Rappaport, who's our head of uh, social mission. He's been with the company for a couple of years. Anurata Chug, who runs our business in, in Europe. She's been with us for about three and a half, four years. So you definitely get this kind of mixture of people who are like stalwarts. They've been with Ben and Jerry's and they kind of, I look to them. They, we look to them and we respect the, uh, the longevity that they have within the business and how the newer folks can, can bring some of that in. We, there is a saying in Ben and Jerry's that you, when you come to Ben and Jerry's, you don't change it, it changes you. And I will say after about two years in, in my role, that's that's definitely true. Um, I, I think that if I speak to more broadly, uh, my time over the past several years at Unilever, you know, there's a real hunger for people, my colleagues, people I've had about the privilege to work with, who are trying to connect with their personal purpose and trying to all bring that into the stuff they're doing. And that's not just some kind of like hallway poster, like teamwork, you know, this kind of cornball stuff. I believe that everybody is saying life's pretty short. I don't have a lot of time to go through the motions where I'm spending 10, 12, 14 hours a day at my job and have that massively incongruous with the stuff I'm trying to do as a human. And crises seem to speed this up, right? We see that all around. Like all of us go, man, am I doing this? Am I doing it? Do I really want to keep doing this right now? So uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, just to throw it around for a little bit more because we're obviously hitting, you know, I don't want to let you go just yet. Just really curious, your take on TikTok. I know this is a little fun question. We've been in serious mm -hmm. note. Just how your brand has been thinking about that, anything of that nature. Um, I'm on TikTok almost every day. Uh, both okay. I, you know, I, I, I actually love the platform. As a person, as a consumer, there's something about this. The, 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 there's something about it I think is is very powerful uh period and i love it i find it super entertaining um uh, and the second thing i'd say as it relates to business i don't i don't know how we can best engage with 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 a platform like tiktok and do it in a way uh other than through fun right so ben and jerry's if we we try to create fun stuff you would take the topics like social mission social justice climate justice very seriously we try not to take ourselves too seriously. We try to have fun. And so I think that, you know, as the team, and again, the team is a lot smarter than, than I am about uh, how, to, how to do the marketing of Ben and Jerry's. 
it's it would be around bringing that fun and that spirit and 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 keeping it light versus trying to you know shoehorn in some type of a a, a complex message like around Juneteenth or defund the police, invest in communities. We we probably wouldn't use that for that. Matthew, I love you. It's always great to see your face, Shane. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Sorry, you know Gary brought me in to, to throw the fastballs today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I had fastballs. Sorry. I had fastballs. No, They're I, not fastballs I'm, for him. He can hit them. I'm, 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 I feel lucky you guys had me on. Thank you, Shane, and thank you, Gary. I really appreciate it. Be well, both of you. Stay okay? well, my friend. Thanks, Matt. All right, our next uh, guest today is uh, someone close to me. 305 in the house. Uh, <laughs> Burrell is. Uh, soon to be a fall graduate this September, attending the Ad School at Portfolio Center Campus with a focus in art direction and an undertone in copywriting. Her favorite thing about the advertising mass media industry is ideation and concepting a great project from start to finish. She proudly shares her conviction that advertising is one of the most important jobs out there. So we are excited to hear her perspective. Welcome, Asia. 305 in the house. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. Andrea, love you much. Gary, finally, nice to Such meet you. Such a pleasure, I couldn't wait. First, give us some context. Give us your background so everybody can get situated with you. Um, of course, well, I am a South Florida orange turned Georgia peach by way of my <laughs> dad school. Um, came, up, came here a little over two to three years ago. Um, and there is a campus in Miami, but um, I found that when we're in our comfort zones, you know, we don't really get to push ourselves and grind. So I'm chasing the grind, I'm chasing the hustle, I'm trying to always make myself better. So I'm like, you know, if you can, not trying to steal the phrase from New York, but if you can make it in Georgia, you can kind of make it anywhere because that's kind of what it's turning <laughs> into. Um, so yeah, a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I'm just excited to be here. So happy to be in school. So happy to be doing something that I've found that I really, really enjoy. It's like a, finding 30 degree water in 110 degree desert. So it's amazing. I love that. Amazing. Talk to me about what you love in advertising. What are you seeing out there? What are some of your favorite brands and, um, and, uh, and campaigns? What, do, what, what are you a fan of? One woman's point of view. Oh my gosh. Uh, um, so currently at this time, number one reason why I love advertising is because um, just like Shane was saying, like it is literally when you think about how mass media is controlled by necessarily one group of people think, you have some serious power in your hands right there. Um, our jobs are that much as important as like a brain surgeon or the police, if you will. Um, one of my favorite campaigns that still blows my mind to this day is that when Burger King put together something on an app, um, they did a geo test where they were sending everyone to McDonald's to get a Whopper. I'll just let that sink in. Like that, that's crazy. Like you, me, Andrea, we're probably not gonna do that, but just- I would do that. <laughs> I'm interested. I thought that was brilliant. I would do that. Yeah. Free, listen, I, I came from zero. Free is always interesting. But the, yeah. spoof, the spoof of it, I'm like- Yeah, it was clever. On. You know what I'm saying? So that when you think about that, like Clorox had to release a statement because a certain someone told everybody you know, and, and you know, everybody knows that. So um, just the power and the responsibility that we have. And I just love it because you're able to professionally play. You're a professional creator. Um, we're, we're mixing up content and we're getting right now in today's age, a diverse group of people to come in because we have a diverse group of people that live in America and all across the world. Everybody is in one color. Um, so that's number two, of course, what I love about advertising. Um, and some people that are really surprising me right now, Ben and Jerry's, I mean, they're knocking it out of the ballpark. Um, 
they wasted no time in their window space. But someone who is really impressing me right now is actually babies.com, babynames.com. Only because I went on there and I saw a campaign that they did um, off of Ad Age. I think they highlighted it where everyone that has been affected um, and murdered um, by the hands of police brutality, they basically put the campaign there and listed all of their names. Now, that's not even, that's just what we know is publicized. But they listed all of their names now and they basically saw this is, these people were. And it, the, the words and everything resonated so deep because when you're going to find a baby name, you don't expect to see you know, a name like George Florida, Eric Garner there, but you're, you're going to remember that they were people as well. And, you know, we're, we're trying to go ahead and change that narrative right now. So yeah, that's what I love about it. Love it. Shane? After you walk across the stage this fall, <laughs> you're entering the professional workforce. What inspires you and what petrifies you about that prospect? Uh, I'm going to start with the petrify. So what I would say that makes me kind of scared is that it's not about the pandemic um, because right now is where lines are being drawn in the sand and you're able to discover who's really in this industry. It separates the men from the boys, if you will. Mm. Um, and so I, I would, I'm really scared about, you know, everyone basically saying like hire more black people and that's great. I want, you know, people to hire <laughs> more persons of color but I don't want it to just be something where we're just filling a quota so no one doesn't look at our agency and it's like, oh, I don't see a lot of... That's right. You know, I don't, I don't want it to be like a roundup and we're just hiring y'all to hire. No, I want you to take us through the process. Um, creative directors should be cultivating right now. You, you should know the ins and outs about your team. Like if you're a creative director right now, your main job is to make sure that your agency is number one in the world. And how you're going to do that is the people that you're working with. Like you leave from the back, not the front. So I think that's what I'm kind of nervous about right now coming into the industry. I don't want to just be a quota. I want my fair shake and I want everyone to, uh, you know, really cultivate the new, the new that's coming in um, and just making sure that you're building authentic relationships and really getting the best out of people that you're trying to bring on your team. Asia, what's really um, super powerful about that is we have a volume model at VaynerMedia that we think is completely merit-based, yeah. right? I don't want the subjective opinion of a creative director deciding you're good enough or you're not good enough based on your Miami ad school. It is an unbelievable as that education is for the ad world. Yeah. I, what, what I'm so excited about now is in a digital world that we believe in where you can put out content at scale down here and let the market show you. Yep. What were you know, all of a sudden you're taking girl, boy, black, white, you know, Asian, Muslim, like all those variables out. The market's deciding, not the internal system yep. that has subjectivity, whether something heavy, like we're talking about here, or oh, I didn't think that was a funny line that you wrote for an yep. ad, has always had its vulnerabilities. And I'm, you know, I think a lot about what we're doing as an agency and what we're trying to set up which is building a merit-based ecosystem around creativity that I think is going to service exactly what you're saying right now. Exactly, Gary, because it comes down to the systematic issue, not only in the advertising industry, you're talking about a systematic issue that's been placed, you know, just in, in America and the world period. And for us, in order for us to move forward, it's almost like teaching a child that two plus two is three instead of four. And it's just, everybody's just going to keep passing down that information. Well, that's wrong. We have to change the system and change the process in order to go ahead and move forward. So it's almost like you got to back up and go to reverse and then, you know, kind of corner that thing out of there, you know? So. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. What about for you? You said your favorite thing is ideation. 
Like, is it just a thrill to be like, all right, do you like the problems? Like for me, I, I think I like marketing because I'm a oper- like I like operating things. So for yeah. me, it's actually just a problem. It's like, I have to say something in some way that's gonna make this thing happen. Do you yeah. like that challenge or are you more aesthetic? Because I'm, I'm less aesthetic, to be honest. I'm, I'm more of like the problem part more than like, ooh, this green is gonna make it happen. I don't yeah. have that. Say, how about for you? I think, um, I think that I like the whole formula of it. Um, I hate math. Let me not say that. I love math because dollars are math. But I, when you go down to like a problem solving thing, um, I think I like the formula, how you get to the end of a solution and really see something um, come to fruition. So I love the moments where you have you and three other people in a room and y'all are locking y'all stuff in the room and y'all are just bouncing ideas off the wall. That's where the magic happens right there. That's what I love. And then solidifying that and combining all of our energies together to say, we've really gone through this formula to make sure that this is the answer or one of the answers. Let's formulate maybe two or three and then go ahead and execute that. So I think I, I really like the process of getting to find the answer. And then once you found it, it's like that eureka moment, you're uh, you're kind of, you know, just taking it and get to the answer. I love problem solving because, you know, what are you in the industry for if you're not basically doing that? But it's it's not just the aesthetic for me because, you know, I'm a designer at heart. Like, the aesthetic has to go with it to bring the whole package together. Um, but I think it's it's really the grind of it, the the concepting and really solidifying what, what the actual insight is to making sure that you're hitting every mark. And that's going to bring you that beautiful answer. Shane? Asia, how how is COVID shaped creativity and design? I think, again, it has separated. If you thought you were creating before and then you felt that COVID came into the way and kind of messed that up, you weren't creating before. I think that when you're, uh, you're coming into the mix and you're, you know, you're saying that you want to enter this industry and really do it, um, you have to immerse yourself into it. Um, I think that COVID has really challenged those creatives um, and really brought out a lot of creative leaders to the forefront um, so we can think about a new day because that's what we're basically on right now. Like the new fashion trend is a mask <laughs> and shame on you if you don't have it. It's almost like, you know, you can, you can not wear underwear in public, but you have to wear your mask in public now. So I think that it, it's forcing people or um, igniting real creatives to go out there and really challenge themselves about the new day that we're in right now. So I'm very optimistic about COVID. It's unfortunate, you know, that certain things happen while we're in the process of a pandemic. Um, But I just believe like as we're in evolution, uh, we just got caught, you know, kind of like the wildfire burns and new life comes. I think we got caught into that. And this is gonna be the process of something beautiful that comes out of COVID and, and the pandemic as a whole. We're realizing what's really important right now. Asia, do you feel like you're, were you raised to be optimistic? You know, you're, ta- like, you're talking right now. I'm like, I love this. Like, this is, that's my framework, right? That's the luxury of my DNA and my en- yeah. environment. Like, do you feel like, I mean, that was an optimist, practical optimistic statement, which is genuinely my favorite. So yeah. I'm fired up right now. Do you feel like that was DNA? Do you think that was, you know, were you raised in an environment that you, that, put optimism on a pedestal it's a you know it's very tough I, I've also walked very you know you delivered that with such class I've walked yeah. very fine lines of like people have died from COVID and but but I my brain goes to if COVID started two months earlier Kobe Bryant doesn't die if COVID happened during this time a year ago my great friend Nipsey Hussle would be alive yep. I go to looking at the this is Shane you like this on big data I look at the traffic data and see how many lives were saved from 
accidents, car accidents during this time because everyone was home, it's kind of hard to be an optimist in the face of something like this. Global warming. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We only have one planet. Um, I think that um, I, I would say, of course, I was raised to be optimistic. Every child has their challenges um, and negativity, but I think my mom um, and my grandmother um, and just my family, close cousins and things like that, and friends, best friends, um, they kept me uh, encouraged. Um, life isn't easy for anyone, um, but I just think that my mom waking up every day telling me and pouring into her kids, like, you know, you guys are leaders. You guys are the head, not the tail. Y'all are above and not beneath. Um, you know, you go out there and you do your best, and that's all I ask you to do. Um, I ask you to just be an amazing human being and just, you're, you know, my mom really taught us that whatever you put out, you're going to get that back. As my grandma Reba says, you know, practice makes perfect. And so if you're, if you're striving every day to make sure that your practice, you're, you're getting ready to run and make sure it's a perfect stride, um, that's going to already, already, you know, kind of be embedded in you. Um, of course, I've had my trials and different things like that, but I think that uh, you put less stress on yourself when you kind of, you know, just put that positivity thing out there. You know this, Gary, I listen to you every morning, like, come on. I love you. But, you know, it, you, you but it's, it's literally protected but it's, but it's, but it's What's amazing is it's, you know, to me, the pride I have when I'm an old man and explaining, I'm like, I think it's practical positivity, right? Like, yep. like I'm not delusional. I yeah. love when people, you know, people like, I'm keeping it real. I'm like, you're not fucking keeping it real. You're keeping yeah. it cynical. Yeah. You're keeping it negative, you yeah. know? And I think that there's a fight, you know, that to me is in the way that you described it. It's what I jumped on. I'm like, oh, this is my, this is my sister right here. Like you went with a practical optimism, not the secret where you're like, oh, it's all going to work. I mean, you know, I'm yeah. sure Shane saw this coming up. You know, everybody asked him, how do I get in? They're like, I hope to be in the NBA. You're like, did you take a thousand free throws? Are you running? Yeah, you know, you know? I mean, like people great. are hoping out here. Six foot five. That's great that you're six foot five, but are you willing to put in the work it's, every it's, day? It's, it's back to privilege. It's yep. great that you're a white male, but I fucking work my fucking face off. It's great yep. that you're six eight. I know unlimited six eight that haven't done shit. Period. Drops Period. the mic. You said it, Gary. Same. <laughs> so totally, what? yeah. So so paint what success looks like. Where you stand now? How how we how will you know? You know what? I did it. So I'm going to give you two answers, and they're both going to be the right answers. Um, I'm going to give you my Gary V, Kanye West, like Beyonce answer, and then I'm going to give you still that that genuine answer um, that's really heartfelt because I think that people need to hear both. So the heartfelt thing is that technically I've already I'm already successful because I'm doing what I love. Um, I wake up every day and I do what I love. If you look at the United States of America, about I'm gonna I'm gonna really throw a large number. 95% of the people wake up and don't like what they do every day. They don't like they dread getting up and going to a place where they don't really want to be. Um, and that's going into some Bob Proctor stuff. I'll talk to Gary and Andre about that. But <laughs> when you you know I, I, I'm successful because I wake up every day and I'm like I can't believe that I'm about to. I'm a creative profession. I'm just speaking it over myself. I, I am. I'm about to go in this industry with, um, you know, with the fire behind me, and, and I'm just so lucky. And then it's the other answer where you're successful um, by the things that you do. If you're immersing yourself in whatever you want to be good at, you have to make sure you're reading. You have to make sure you're studying. You have to make sure you're getting a mentor. You have to make sure you're following. You're YouTubing. You're TikToking. So it doesn't matter if you want to be the next Michael Phelps. Are you going to the pool every day? Are you working Facts. out? Facts. You're working out every day. You're eating right. You're, you're watching your body fat and trying to equate that to how fast you can move in the water. Like, you got to know your science about what you want to be in. So 
Um, I, I think those things either equal up success and then um, I'm already successful. I, I just can't wait to, to go into the next phase of- Andrea, 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 if we're not, if, if you're not recruiting this young lady, even though you're the greatest CMO ever, you, your job may be in jeopardy. <laughs> no, no. I love it. We got to go. Shane, take us to the next guest. Asia, that was unbelievable. If I could, I'm not joking about VaynerMedia, but if it's something else, if I can be a help to you, I'm here for you. Oh, Gary, we're, we're definitely going to see each other at the top. Okay, let's go. Let's go. I can't wait. Thank you so much again. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Asia, thanks so much. Our next guest. Very excited to welcome Mr. Jackson Janiagam, who is the VP and GM of DT Clorox. He has a background in the digital world with more than a decade of experience on the agency side. Um, then he ran Digital Chipotle, which we all love, and was Chief Marketing Officer of Box.com, an online wholesale ret retailing startup before Clorox came calling. Importantly, race relations was the focus of his studies before diving deep into the business world. Jackson, welcome. Thank you, Shane. And Shane, props to you, man. No one ever gets my name right, ever, <laughs> uh, on the first time. So, dude, I appreciate that. Thank you. Shane is multi-talented. Jackson, right? I'm, so, I'm super glad you're here, my friend. I've, uh, Thank you. I've known of you from afar. We've never had the luxury of really engaging, and so I'm really honored to spend some time with you. Under, same, man, under same. really, uh, you know, what's fun about this is, we could have met over a glass of wine or, or a business <laughs> meeting, but this is really good stuff to get together with. And so I really, really, really appreciate it. Talk to me about, talk to me about like what you're seeing, like what are some of the themes that are on your mind? You've had this incredible career being really in, you know, what's, what's your, what's your hot, using Shane here, like sports talk, what's your hot take right now? What are some of the things on your mind? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot, right? That's a lot to unpack. I would say, um, as uh, someone who studied race relations, who's an immigrant, you know, my family fled Sri Lanka, a war-torn country, to give me a better life, coming here and raised me in Southern Virginia. My dad went to Vod Tech, um, and, you know, being a brown man with a thick accent in, in Blacksburg, Virginia in 1980, not very easy. So, you know, that, that there's a lot of stuff there that's kind of coming up right now with everything I see, but there's also a lot of things I can't relate to not being a black man in America. And I have a lot of friends and family that this hits hard. So there's just a lot personally for me because I believe so much in, in this issue. And, and I don't believe it's an issue of June, 2020. It's an issue that's happened forever. It just happens that the media's on, everyone's hashtagging and now it's 100%. the topic. And, and the but, big concern is like, I'm worried that it's a news cycle. I mean, me yeah. too, me too doesn't feel hot yeah. as hell right now. Right, right. And that's still and, going and was going and is going. And dude, it drives me nuts when I hear people say, well, you know, given the current state of affairs, I'm like, current state of affairs, this has been the state the of world? affairs. Yeah. yeah, this is how it's been. This is this is not a current thing. This has been what it's been like. So Jackson, for me there, personally- there, there, are, there are children in cages in our country right now. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. There's, uh, you know, like-, like, like <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, listen. So anyway, so there's a lot there and we could spend hours. You have people here who are really- better qualified than me to talk about all the layers that go into and what we need to do. But as a professional, as a corporate person too, Please. you know, I do believe it's my duty to create as much of an open environment that really enables foundational change, right? Uh, I think Asia before me was talking about it, like, let's not, let's not 
tokenize people. Let's not just do what's right because it's a moment. Let's do what's right because it's the right thing to do. And let's create foundational change, system, systemic change. So, you know, I talked about this on LinkedIn recently, Gary, about like, you know, this article, all these CEOs, all the changing uh, guards, the CEOs and why they're struggling to adapt. And you saw what's happening with some brands now changing their name, changing their logos, even though there's still some egregious examples of pure racism across sports and entertainment and brands, but they wait for the moment to react. And you know, one of my things is how do we change systematically at the board level, at the CEO level to ensure that there's more people of color, more people representing different genders, representing the LGBTQ community, representing all walks of life, religious uh, affinities, so that we have true perspective you know, and you know, people you know calling each you, other out along the let way. Me tell you, let me tell you where I'm at on my world, Jackson. What I basically decided 18 months ago, um, and and obviously back to the moment, You, I'm, I'm a, a human like everybody else. 18 months ago, we started making progress in this. It's obviously more in the ethos, so you just get affected. I, I realized just like hitting a quota and I was against quota my whole, you know, cause I did a lot of homework on like other organizations that had to hit quotas and how it undermined it. Cause I felt we have kind intent, we have good intent, but I decided just like hitting a quota to hit a profit margin, to pay your bank bills. We're just like, I've just started to become a dictator about it. Like they're, they're, it's all my fault. Everything at all my companies is hundred percent my fault. So to your point, I think it's just going to come down to treating things that you believe in as a mandatory thing no different than the oxygen of having yep. a credit line or a bank yep. line or right we're having yeah you know. and and hiring people who care right at every level do you really care about this do you care about this or are you just checking the box to say yes i've done i've done my part do you really care about creating that diverse uh, perspective at the table so for me this is everything it's been something that has been on my mind for a long time listen like post 9 11 man even now when i go to an airport oh. the stairs i get if i fly to cincinnati uh, no no offense cincinnati if i fly to kentucky if i fly to <laughs> texas i've flown all those places in the last six months it is an awkward, and maybe I, I don't have myself with a beard, but it is not a fun walk up and down that plane or through the airport and through the, the random screenings, man. Like, so listen, I, I'm all for it. I think it starts at every level and every function, every vertical, including corporate world. So we all have a role there. So, you know, that's a one big topic we can definitely address. But on the other side, I think you also probably want to talk about direct to consumer. I know you and Shane probably think about that a lot too, in terms of where are we going, right? Post COVID, during pre COVID, it was already going there, man. So like, oh, to me, people talk about this now, Oh man, I get recruiters hitting me up from large CBGs. I'm not going to say names saying, Hey, we need to invest in this now. I'm like, well, you should have been investing it two years ago. So now you're going to spend a lot of money and resources to maybe get up to speed. So, you know, what I would say is, as you guys know, uh, we're going to see a shift. And this isn't to say retail is going away. We all know, I mean, retail isn't going away. It's going to be an omni-channel experience. It's going to be the different ways of shopping, the square footage, how, how the physical store experience looks like might change, when and how you engage with the brand might change, when and where you place an order versus pickup might change. Last mile will still be key. But that whole mind shift, I think people are, go polarize it. They're like, oh, it's no more retail. It's all pure plates. Like, no, man, it's both. It's everything. And the foundational piece under that will be the data, right? I think that still gets lost. I could sell a widget, Gary. You know, you could sell services. Shane, you could sell season tickets. I could sell a physical product and Clorox products. At the end of the day, that first party data drives it all. So I think the more, uh, the more this continues to evolve post-COVID, the shopping behaviors, people looking to say, hey, I don't want to go to a crowded Costco right now. I want my wholesale goods shipped to me, or I'm just going to go curbside and pick it up. All that's going to be driven by the data. And I think that's the thing that even retailers, let alone CPGs and people who are not tied to the point of sale, are struggling to kind of catch up on. So I'm really curious to see what the shift means. And, and from a talent standpoint, what a great opportunity. If you're coming out of school right now, or you're thinking about what to major in, you're not thinking about decision science, forget data science and predictive modeling, decision science. You're not thinking about really digging into programming and learning Python, learning SQL, like 
that's that's going to put you at a huge advantage against anyone else. I mean, forget the guy who knows, you know, how to do above the line marketing. There's like a million people like that. You show me someone who knows SQL and Python could do decision and predictive modeling and can also run my performance marketing. Oh, and maybe starts to learn about brand. That's the person I'm hiring. So I think there's a huge shift happening from from high school all the way to the senior ranks. And I think you're going to see the C-suite as well. Shane. Yeah, I was reminded of, of that line from uh, White Man Can't Jump when, Ro when <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell says to Billy Wu, says, Billy, I'm thirsty. And Billy gets up and gets her glass of water and she says, no, I want you to say, honey, I know what it feels like to have thirst too. So that, that struck me when you said we need to hire people who care. Can, yeah. can we make people care? I know that sounds weird. Can we make people care? And can we make people authentically want to care instead of just checking that box? Yeah, I, Shane, I think about this all the time. And this is hard to judge, right? Because it's so, it's, it's like, if, you, if you're not, if your heart's not hurting right now, if your stomach's not not thinking about this and, and how sad this is and what we need to do to fix this, how sad it's been for a long time, like that's got to come through in the interview. When you talk to someone, you got to see like that passion. They got to care about this topic and want to actually make an impact versus like, yeah, you know, going through the the, the, the academic, like I did this, I did this. Like, no, I want to see fucking passion in you. I want to hear you swear. I want to hear you talk about this. Even if you're a straight white male, I don't care. Like have some passion and care about this. Just like you might care about sustainability. How is that we can, and I trust me, sustainability is really important, but this is human lives. We're talking about people here. Like we're talking about some shit that's been going on for so long. So to me, it's at that level, Shane. And I, I know, listen, I'm probably, uh, I'm probably, uh, you know, too much of an optimist. Maybe this isn't re reality. It's not the corporate world. I live in the corporate world. I get it. But I think we're at a, state, at a point now where genuinely we have to change the way we think about hiring. And a Harvard Wharton degree is amazing. Don't get me wrong. That can't be the only thing anymore, right? We got to look at things. I think years of experience. Jackson, people Jackson, Jackson, by the way, the data showed in practicality in the business world, it wasn't as great as people think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but perception, honestly, Gary. Honestly, perception though, right? There are some recruiters well, uh, listen, out there. Listen, perception is fucking exactly the point of what we're talking. I mean, we could put a, that should be the t-shirt everybody wears if we right. want to get the right conversation going. Pro and con, perception is the entire situation. Yep, yep, yep. It's the most, and, and, it's the most powerful yeah. currency in the world. Yeah, and, and I do think it's shifting. Like, I, I, I do. see it, right? You guys probably see it, years of experience. Right? I used to be like, oh, you know, 30 years, this is the funniest one. Hey, we're looking for a CMO or a CEO, 30 years experience, deep D to C um, in analytics. I'm like, um, As if it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> like, who, who are you getting? Please, please introduce me to this person because I would love to talk to them for an hour because I feel like I'm about to get rich talking to this person because they knew this 30 years ago. Jackson, on that point, much, you know, and obviously I, I launched e-commerce wine business in 1996. So this conversation's, you know, exciting for me because I can, I can yeah. <laughs> you know, in the way that COVID sped up DTC, which it clearly did, the behavior has shifted, period, end of story. What, you know, people are saying five, nobody's got the date on how many years or what have you, but it's shifted it. You know, do you view the Black Lives Matter uh, scenario that we're all living through right now also speeding up the process of us having a healthier conversation around race in this country? God, man, I hope so. Just like the Me Too movement in some ways, but it's also very different. Uh, I, I do hope so, Gary. I mean, I, I posted about this the other day. It's June, right? And it is the topic. The question will be, are we going to hold each other accountable? Are we going to hold each other in check? Am I going to hold myself accountable in September, in December, in June of next year, in, in 2022, 2023? That's the key. I see a lot of people posting a lot of great things. The key is what's that foundational effort? And it, it's so nice to post something 
well, what are you doing? Sometimes I've seen some people doing things that aren't getting any press, right? They're not posting anything, but they're engaging on a very local level with local communities, organizations. We have a big engineering team. Um, there's a great organization. Um, there's, you know, Girls Who Code, you guys know that, a great organization. There's also Black Girls Who Code. So like, how do we engage with communities like that to start recruiting and start sponsoring their yes. events? So we open up the pipeline. How do we go to historical Black yes. colleges to recruit from versus yes. Harvard and Duke and, and Warren? Not to say you disregard them, but like, no, it's, it's those it's, systematic it's, things, it's, right? And that it's, I think and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's on action back to me yeah. I, and i think there's a lot of people the biggest breakthrough for me is fuck and i really started having the seed 18 months ago and we changed some things and now i'm really excited because i'm like fuck you to myself i demonized quotas because i wanted the intent because i'm so in love with intent and now i've switched you you yeah. evolve and i'm like the only like back to what you just said we're doing we're doing a specific scholarship program for historically black colleges for Vayner Media, and I'm just mandating that. And that's just, yeah. uh, that's, there's no other way to fix than to act. Yeah. And either well, you listen, you're, or you don't. You're, you're seeing in sports well, right? I'm already starting to see some four-star and five-star athletes decommit from major programs and go to historical 100%. black colleges. So like the more that happens across the industries, across other verticals, like the more I'll make an impact. You know, I'll tell you one thing too, that's kind of tough for me as a minority. I think also there there's, America's kind of created a little bit of a minority against minority. Like there's a tension. There's always 100%. tension. People of color. And, and I think it's really important that while all of us have our struggles, right now is the moment to focus on the black community. Uh, and I think I, sometimes minorities, we, we try to take this moment, like, oh, this is us. It's like, yes, I've had my challenges. 100%. Don't get twisted. But like my challenge is not the same. And I think that's a discussion that also needs to be had. It's like, yes, we're all people of color, but right now we have an issue that we really need to address that goes back centuries. And I think sometimes I, I think that's right. I, I literally, I, literally I, people get some of my friends got mad at me and I'm just like laughing them like no no I understand all lives matter is it okay that we just focus on the black ones right now what the fuck's the matter with people like like everybody the world doesn't think most people don't understand that the world is abundant yeah worrying about yeah. black lives right now doesn't mean we don't worry about trans or don't worry about you know Muslim Americans or don't worry about Jews yep. or don't worry about yep. white like it doesn't mean that why is this such a fucking either or and we yep. need to be able to hold the capacity for those things yeah, and I think it starts with a general empathy, right? Real, genuine empathy and care for people. And if you don't have that, man, like, I, what, I don't know, man. Like, yeah. I, I just, uh, I'm with you on that. So, is that. so, Jackson, is that what's Shane, Shane, I apologize. I know I set it up normally as another question, but we're going to run out of time completely, and I want to get Damon in here. So, Jackson, thank you so much. Shane, can you please Thank you. Ga Gary, I got to say one thing to Shane, though. I got to say this. This is please crazy. Go. I heard that you were hosting. I joined, so my team and I got together at 2K League right in the COVID because we wanted to stay connected. And we set up teams, and I, you're legit on my starting five. And I saw yesterday that you're hosting. Like, you gotta be fucking kidding me! All people, and dude, you're you're averaging twelve and ten. I gotta say, so thank you. You're crushing it for me and my team. <laughs> but what about that defense? What about that defense? Oh, dude, lockdown, lockdown, lockdown. I'm way better on two K than I ever was in real life. That, that's the secret about. My <laughs> All right, let's move. Let's move. Thank you. Thank you, Jackson. Jackson. Uh, well, our our last guest from humble beginnings. Uh, to self-made millionaire with over $6 billion to date in global product sales and a starring role on ABC's newest business reality TV show, Shark Tank, Damon John is the personification of the American dream. That standards of excellence while expanding his interest in fashion, branding, marketing, consulting, entertainment, and beyond. This industry leader, best-selling author, and groundbreaking entrepreneurial expert has evolved into a highly sought-after business and motivational speaker. Welcome, Damon. What's up, Shane? What's up, Gary? What's up, everybody? 
What's good, Damon? It's really great to see you. Staying so, healthy? Staying healthy. Trying. Up a few, up five, right, up five, but not atrocious for COVID. I'm trying to keep it together. How are you? Yeah, all good, good. I'm up a couple more than that. You know, my belly's going to be sitting over the, the table on Shark Tank. It's all good, you know? Talk to me what's on your mind. Give us a little five minutes on that, and then we'll get into a question or two. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what topic you want to go on. You want to go on what? to COVID? You want to go on to Black whatever, Lives Matter? Whatever, whatever honestly, free, free for all. I mean, entrepreneur, I think, some entrepreneur exactly, shit, wherever you want to go. You know, I think Jackson said a lot of really strong and powerful things, uh, you know, and, and I want to make sure that the, I, I think the Black Lives been around quite some time, but it's also going to find ways to be squashed as well. You know, you know, a couple of things are going to be pulled down, maybe Antimama will be changed and stuff like that. But if we don't create change from the, the ground level and, uh, you know, it's funny, Robert Smith made a comment in uh, a Forbes article. He said there's 4,700 banks out, out there. Um, I think uh, black banks are only 21 of them, and the 4,700 banks of America, they control $20 billion in assets, and the African-American-owned banks only control $5 billion in assets. Uh, that's where the challenge becomes, because systematically, if you have mass incarceration, uh, no two felons are alike, right? And so if you go into a, a, a job to fill out an application, you have to write the mark, mark the word felon, but you got five years in jail for $600 worth of weed, then you're not gonna get that job. You're not gonna get that loan, right? Then you're gonna have to go back to the streets. So as we talk about all this stuff and we're talking about whether the 15% pledge or whether we're going after corporations, and I think, you know, I was on a call with extremely powerful people yesterday. The, the, the change has to happen in, for everybody, the change has to happen, especially for African-Americans in the school process, meaning that we need to be teaching uh, entrepreneurship like we teach science and like we teach uh, shop class to kids who are eight and nine and 10 years old so that when they get to the level of being 18, they can decide if they want to take out a $250,000 school, which that's that's not what I think is necessary, of course, if you're going to go and be a doctor and that nature. And then we have to also talk internally about how can we have people on the board, but people who are also highlighting other people and executives who they can mentor of color, of, of LGBT, uh, who are females as well, to train them to come up in the system. You know, when this whole thing happened, I had to actually get on a call with my staff. And, uh, you know, I had, I had to have a hard conversation with them. And I said, well, I don't think my staff are 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 uh, racist because they work for a black man. And but even though we had to have a conversation internally, you know what happened when there was a woman sitting next to another woman, a woman, a, a, a white woman, and a woman of color. She said, "I never realized that when your son turns 16 years old, you're gonna fear if your son is even gonna come home today after they start driving the car." She was like, "I never knew you were going through that pain." So internally, after that, they all started to have conversations because internally you have to know what's going on in the world. And what we're finding is, I'm talking to the major corporations, one of my guy has 2,000 people work for him. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the white kids at the company because they're so upset because they're 18 and 19 and 20 years old. They're so upset seeing what's happening to the people they respect or, or, or like or their colleagues that they want to burn the whole place down. And he said, I talked to the, you know, African-Americans, they're kind of like, oh, you know, we've been going through this for years, you know, thank you for catching up. But they're not as like mad about it because we've been through this. And, 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 and what comes out of that? It's a beautiful thing. It, it, it's showing that, you know, listen, 
Nothing in our country has ever been defeated or any place, apartheid, uh, civil rights, war, uh, the civil war, nothing has been defeated without people of all colors coming together and joining forces. And we're seeing that in the streets these days. And that's something that's amazing. But we got to stay hard on it and make fundamental change. I mean, look, look what happened. You know, we went into World War II and men went away and the women didn't have to stay home and watch the kids. They started going back and they started to work in factories. The men started coming home and talking yep. shit. The women were like, go fuck yourself. Right. The men started getting mad. And then we had to have a woman's movement in 1965, then another movement in 1970s. And then it takes 60 years after that to have a Weinstein uh, go and create an issue where we had to be able to uh, legally say a woman needs her day. A woman needs to be able to uh, be able to be a CEO, mandatory to be on the board. we got to start doing those things now and we can't make it like uh you know, we can't wait another 60 years. So how are we going to stay on top of those things now? And, you know, I know that you're, 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 a, you're a history buff and stuff like that. You know, people may have said, look at the Martin Luther King days and how we tried to change there. You know, and I've seen a lot of white people say that to me. And I go, do you realize that it wasn't a Martin Luther King thing over there? It was, it was a two superpowers. It was Russia and it was America. And, right. and most of the world is brown. So what Russia was doing was going out to all the brown countries and Africa and everything. Look how bad America treats their black people. Do you want to be on that side? And yep. that is the main reason why a lot of these things were acknowledged. And we cannot let that happen now. We can't just pull down a couple of statues and talk about poor Aunt Jemima when her, grand, her great-grandson is like, yo, by the way, Aunt Jemima was my great-grandmother who hustled her product all around and got turned down by all these people. And now you're taking her legacy happy, yeah. away just because you think that's, the, you see what I'm saying? So, of course so I see what you're saying. By the way, back to your earlier point, everybody who's so upset, the youth, what are the actions? Yeah. You know, you know, using a hashtag or putting a black post in your Instagram, is that the action? Is it voting? Is it, like, what are we, the actions? Anyway, Shane, yeah, so we, I want to get a couple more yeah, things I'll, in before I'll, I'll get into what what is that? What are actionable items we can take? The every man can take. People always ask, "How can we help?" What's your advice? Well, first of all, just like every entrepreneur and entrepreneur, the reason why entrepreneurs are successful is they see a problem they feel that nobody was solving, and what they do, and they say that I'm going to solve this problem. And what do they do? They identify the problem, then they do their homework on how they can attack it, and then they go and they take affordable steps and grab their resources around them to then slowly start attacking it. This is not going to be changed in two days or, or in one year. So what are your actual steps? I'm gonna post something on one of my sites or something like that to give you actual stuff, but you can report into your local uh, police station that they must wear body cams. A lot of them don't wear body cams. They were taken off body cams because the well-to-do in the area didn't like to go into court at, in a, in a, in a three-piece suit. And then a body cam shows them that they were they were drunk driving. They were stumbling all over the place. So that's why they generally took off body cams because of the influential people. But now you can enforce that. You can also tr talk about uh, mass incarceration and try not to support companies that do support private sector jails. Uh, meaning, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to get upset, but Amazon does that. You can also educate yourself and go and look at Netflix 13 and various other things to understand what, why and how, what systematic racism is so that you can see it when you are, and you can address it. You can write your congressman, you can do so many other things. And, and just so you know, when, what, what, is, uh, what is mass incarceration? What's the advantage of that? 
you're the taxpayer, you're paying for it. Also, people are now incarcerated and they're getting paid 18 cents an hour to work on uh, products and, 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 and to manufacture. That is modern day slavery. And we incarcerate more African-Americans, more black people. We incarcerate more that in the entire world globally. Bye. So you need to understand the problem and not just go, oh, no, nah, there's just those people acting like that. Oh, you know, whatever. And, you know, like that's the famous meme out there. Racism never always existed. Now it's just being filmed, of course. So you just got to educate yourself and make small changes. Small, keep getting small changes. Try. I even realized 85%, 80, 80 or 85% of my staff started as interns. I realized I was pooling only from certain schools. It wasn't that I was looking for white kids because I have a very, very, very diverse, uh, uh, um, very diverse uh, staff. I mean, everybody's in my staff and diverse from gender to age to religion, whatever the case is. But I decided that I need to offer internships to other schools that are not as convenient for me. They're not necessarily in the city and things of that nature. And, and yep. if you start to understand that and wrap your head around it, it's great. And, one, and I'm going to leave one final point and then and we'll open it up. But uh, when I did that conversation with my staff, a guy who works for me, uh, who happens to be Jewish, said, you know what? And he's definitely not racist. I mean, he hangs out with, I mean, he's he, he, black members of his family. He said, I always, I never thought about this. I can change my last name. I cannot have the long sideburns. I cannot wear my yarmulke and I can hide in plain sight. I never realized that. You can't hide in plain sight as a person of color. You are who you are, and and, and this what is. That's literally the main conversation my dad and I have had. You know, my my dad grew up in anti-Semitic Soviet Russia. Both my grandfathers spent a decade in jail, but one decade in jail, one a couple years in jail for being Jewish, straight up. But but when we were talking a lot during this time, obviously, and this is why these are important times, you know, it's just, you, you know, just even him remembering that some of his friends didn't look as Jewish, look mm-hmm. as Jewish and how their life was different gets to the point of like skin color and how it is different. Yeah. It just, it's, it is what it is. Let's, uh, while we got two last minutes, talk to me about something that you're seeing in the, in the business world and COVID just to take it a little, we, while we got you, one of the best entrepreneurs, we got to take advantage of. What are you seeing post COVID? Some of the opportunities people should be looking for. So many opportunities. I'm seeing to keep people no longer have to fly around and kiss a bunch of ass for a month to go and see all their potential uh, uh, investors. They're catching them all in three days, you know, right there on Zoom calls. I'm seeing that people who only five months ago thought that their product was inferior or nobody saw the vision. And this is the opportune time. I'm also seeing a lot of businesses going to be crumbling and that's it. They're just not going to come back. Now, you can either reset the business and start over a little more wisely, reduce your square footage in your store, break your lease and have those conversations. But I'm seeing a massive amount of transfer of wealth. And I'm also seeing that the guy and nothing wrong with being a pizza delivery guy. But when my pizza delivery guy is telling me on hot new stocks, I'm making sure that I am not uh, <laughs> cash heavy, you know, because it, it was a two years ago how we all heard about cryptocurrency. And everybody started telling that I'm getting a lot of stock tips by people who should not be telling me about stocks. Not that I'm a genius. So I am staying cash yeah. heavy because this is going to go wait. It's going to go right back. And everybody on here probably knows people who are telling them, oh, you know, this way, you know, oh, you've been yeah. in Madero. And, and by the way, when Damon says cash heavy, Damon's worked his face off for decades to get to a place where you know his cash is a little different, but on some real practical shit, that means sitting on $800 instead of buying something with it, like actually Correct. saving money. Actually. Correct. I'm talking, Save money. 
having $300 in your bank instead of being negative a buck 30 on your credit card is a nice move. And so I think a lot of times when we have the luxury of having access to somebody like Damon in this scenario, what we do is say, well, we don't have that kind of like, oh, easy for you, Damon. No, no, it wasn't easy for Damon. The way Damon became Damon is because he did it when it wasn't easy and saving 50 bucks and a hundred bucks really, 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 really matters. I started food with $80 and it was $80 that I saved up. And it took me a month to save up that $80. That's a great way to end. Shane, I, you were an unbelievable, you know, I already knew what kind of all-time teammate you were. So I knew how this was going to go. I really appreciate you. Andrea, I'm sure you're going to jump in here maybe and wrap us up. But Shane, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And Damon, thank you for being on. Thank you, guys. And thank you, uh, Gary, for that recent, uh, you know, lob you gave me. Appreciate it. Got you, always. Wow, Shane, Gary, thanks to you and and all the speakers. Just incredible to have real conversations that need to be had. Um, we had just incredibly deep um, Shane, and a lot you, of Shane. love for everybody. Um, Asia, let's talk. <laughs> we're taking next week off for Marketing for the Now for the holidays, but we're going to be back with a double header. So please feel free to register once you, you sign off um, today and take a peek at our social when we've got the registration links up. And don't forget to keep um, the conversation going on Twitter, hashtag Marketing for the Now, and can't wait to see you on the next episode. Thanks so much. All right, episode's over. Like I said in the beginning, please leave a review and subscribe up on Apple. It would mean a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to me. Thank you very much. Hey, podcast. Joe from Team Gary here. Today's highlighted review is Gratitude Society by KCAC. I've been listening to Gary for about a year, and man, that dude has helped me switch my mindset and perspective. He has gave me the courage to do things that I was afraid of, like quitting the job I hate. Gary, I would love to be a part of that show. I would love to call and ask some questions sometime. Thanks, Gary. Keep those reviews coming. We could highlight yours next.